Hello, YouTube watchers and podcast listeners. My name is Johnny Dupe, and welcome to Movie Change Up, the show where we repitch and reboot new versions of movies we love and movies we love to hate, with a little added twist. Before we get started, please help us out by liking and subscribing on YouTube, as well as leaving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app, or just go in and do it on every podcast app. That'd be cool, too, um, but just make sure it's five stars. Um, I will be your host today, as well as your overlord and your judge. Uh, now uh, it is time to introduce the rest of the heads and boxes. Uh, first, we have my consulting judge and fellow co-creator of the show. Uh, please introduce yourself over there. Yeah, I'm Joe Frookie. I've been having a lot of fun these last few months doing this podcast. It's been great. Uh, we got uh, some competitors that you might be slightly familiar with. I'm ready to judge them and see if we get the next big you know, someone that can take Johnny down because I clearly can't anytime soon. So, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll see. We got some we got uh, some interesting uh, uh, things tonight. So, next uh, we have uh, a man who was on last week and won in a very convincing fashion in his first ever episode. Um, Zach, how are you feeling after your first win? And are you more prepared? Do you feel like for uh, your second? Uh, competition. I feel. I feel like I'd be more prepared. I've done a little bit more creativity with this one because of the movies involved. They're more well-known brands, yeah. so had to be more creative to make something different. Cool. All right. Love to hear it. And finally, last and m- maybe least, uh, we have a familiar face who is on search for his first win um, at Owen three. Tristan, the uh, the more losses that keep piling up, how does that affect uh, your confidence going into each fight? You know, I'm coming in here even more confident than I've been for any of the other matches. You know, I just opened up a giant bottle of water and exploded all over myself while you're introducing Zach. <laughs> Hopefully that's not a sign, but I'm now soaking wet ahead of this match. <laughs> but all right. that might be Maybe that'll thing. be the trick. If you win today, that's what you're going to have to do before every match <laughs> from now on is pour a bottle of water over your head. I want to bring in a challenge before I start here because, like you said, I'm on a losing streak, and I have some some bones to pick with with the management here. Sometimes I think some of the calls have been bad in the last episodes. I think maybe I should have won a few of these games I lost, but I want up the stakes here. So I bought these things, the one chip challenge. It's kind of a famous thing on reaction videos. They're like insanely spicy chips with Szechuan pepper and Carolina Reapers and all kinds of spicy shit on here. So if I lose this match right now, I'm going to eat this pepper live on camera in front of everyone on this podcast. Perfect. Love the threats. If yeah. you win, do it on celebration. So. I, I saw those at the store today, actually. I might have to uh, to give that a try as well. That should be a thing. Um, if you Everyone has to buy them, and if you lose your match, you have to eat one live on camera every episode. Perfect. That'll really make people be vicious and fight each other. Well, I like spicy food, so I, I – uh, We'll just never have a chip. I'll be sad (laughs) because I never lose. All right. Um, Now, if you saw our thumbnail uh, for uh, this week's episode at all before, we are continuing with themed episodes. And today's theme is movies based on TV shows. So we have seven movies. Um, They are all based on TV shows. But the, we are doing uh, reboots based on the major motion pictures that came out. So first we have uh, the A-Team from 2010. Uh, Next, we have Dora and the Lost City of Gold from 2019. Uh, Then we have the Dukes of Hazzard from 2005. Then Inspector Gadget, the Matthew Broderick classic from 1999. Um, We got Lost in Space from 1998, 
which I believe I'm the only one in this uh, panel that has seen it. And I've seen it probably 30 times. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, then we have Power Rangers from 2017. And our last movie is uh, Scooby-Doo from 2002. So those are our seven movies. Now each competitor will have to uh, repitch those movies. Uh, um, Alex is a comment just distracted me a little. Uh, once, so Alex says he was rooting for Tristan until he said the chip thing. Now he hopes he loses. So, um, yeah, yeah, you shouldn't have started with that. But everyone's going to be rooting for Zach now just to see the chip thing happen. But anyway, so our, our contestants have to pitch these seven movies, and they have seven rules to use, and they have to use one of each rule. So, Joe, what are the rules that we're using today? Our first rule is one must be a David Lynch movie. He's kind of a weird, interesting director. Our other rule is one must use only dead actors. Another one is one must be a Lego movie. Uh, one must use a character made famous by Bill Murray. One movie must be a musical. One must be a horror movie. And one must use only Star Wars actors. All right, cool. I'm, I'm excited for uh, the rules are interesting. Um, some new ones, a couple repeat uh, rules that we've seen on other episodes before. Um, but uh, I believe Zach won the toss, and he chose to start with uh, Dukes of Hazard. So I will read the description, and then we'll get into the into the pitches. Um, so the Dukes of Hazard came out in 2005. It doesn't have a critic score for some reason on Rotten Tomatoes, but it has a 47% audience score, which is probably higher than the. Uh, critic score would have been. This movie was directed by, uh, this is going to be a tough name to read, but uh, Jay uh, Chandrasekhar. Uh, he's the guy from Broken Lizard who is in uh, Super Troopers and everything like that, uh, but I just don't know how to say his last name. Um, it stars Johnny Knoxville and Sean William Scott, as well as Jessica Simpson. Um, and IMDb describes it as cousins Bo, Luke, and Daisy Duke, and their uncle Jesse egg on the authorities of Hazard County. Boss Hog and Sheriff Coltrane. Um, so that is uh, really all you need to know about Dukes of Hazard. The show was in the seventies, and this was a this was a decent like early two thousands cable comedy, basically of it. So I'm excited to see what you guys do with it. So Zach, uh, I forget, are you starting or is Tristan starting? Tristan, go ahead and start. I'll defer. All right, Tristan, let's hear it. All right, let's start off with a win here. Uh, for my Dukes of Hazard, I went with all dead actors. Okay. And my director is the dead director, Billy Wilder. And my cast for Bo is Chris Farley. And for Luke is John Candy. And I also have Audrey Hepburn in as sort of like a, a romantic interest slash friend of the, they meet along the way. And the police chief who's sort of hunting them down throughout the movie is Marlon Brando. So my Dukes of Hazard is set in the 1950s in the South, and it's about the good old boys, the Dukes of Hazard. We know them; they're iconic. They have their infamous car, and they're troublemakers. You know, they live in a dusty small town. Did he freeze? Yeah. All right. Well, Tristan froze. So. We were hoping going into this week we wouldn't have any technical problems, and uh, we were worried about maybe Zach's computer. And uh, then right off the bat, Tristan cuts out on us, so um, he might need to exit and and come back in. So I'm going to shoot him. Yeah. Oh, wait, he's, he looks like he's on his computer again. Oh, do we got him? Can you hear us? Hey. All right. All right. Tristan, oh, I would love to have you. Oh. You can hear us. 
I can hear you guys. I'm good. All right. Yeah. I was about to have you send me your pitches, and I was going to face Zach doing your pitches. <laughs> that was our backup plan. So glad I didn't have to do that, even though it would have been fun. Maybe I should right. skip anyway. I'll, I'll eat it afterwards just, just to make up for that 15 minutes that we just wasted. <laughs> We're only 16 minutes in. We wasted like six minutes, and I'll just edit it out of the podcast, but it'll live forever in the YouTube version. So. It, will, it will live forever will on the internet. All right. So, um, okay, we got your casting of uh, Dukes of Hazard. That is where we left off. So just restart at your pitch for us. So my, my uh, Dukes of Hazard takes place in the 1950s in the South. Uh, we follow these good old boys. We know them from the show. We know kind of their iconography of the car and their sort of personalities are ruffians. They make problems in the small town with the small town cops. And this time they're on the run from the cops to try and like draw down the heat from their most recent crime. And they're out throughout the 1950s South visiting various different states and various different places throughout the country. And through this journey, we see obviously it's uh, John Candy and Chris Farley. So they're going to be playing up sort of like the, doofy kind of lovable doofy, doofuses that the Dukes of Hazard could be, especially in like a modern climate. You want to see these guys sort of like be funnier rather than just like taking them seriously. And I think we can see their journey through the South. They'll meet people of different backgrounds, people of different, different walks of life and different experiences. And they'll sort of learn to see the South differently and still have their Southern pride, but acknowledge the flaws and the progress that the South can still make. So in the end, they'll learn to sort of balance that pride with a need to be better people and make the place better. So they'll eventually go back and turn themselves into the cops and they're given community service where they have to work at a local community center for children. And there they teach them car mechanics. They teach them various different little things that the Dukes Hazard would know. And I think that's the last note we leave them on is sort of like, they're still troublemakers. They're still making making pranks and things in the small towns, but they're trying to turn over a new leaf and they, their experience traveling through the South of the United States brought them to a new perspective on the country they still love. And that's my pitch. All right. All right, Zach, what do you got for us? Director in a second. So Luke Duke, I have Zach Efron. Bo Duke, I have Lucas Till. Phone Boss Hog, John Goodman. Daisy Duke, Alexandra Daddario, Uncle Jesse, Josh Brolin. Now my director is David Lynch. We're going to do something a little different with the Dukes of Hazard. We're going to change things up and we're going to bring it into today's social climate. They, they're still the same old Duke boys at the beginning of the film. We're going to do a standard Dukes of Hazard. You know, they're, they're running around doing their thing. Ruffians, as Tristan called them. I like that word. Uh, John Goodman catches them. And he tell and he basically is going to imprison them, but they get away. They start fleeing to up north, and they're starting to see what's going on in the rest of the country outside of their small little town. You know, they tell people, "Are what's your car's name?" Oh, the General Lee. That's uh, there's Confederate flag on their car. That's uh, you know, we, we can have them be naive, not stupid, but naive. You know, they're in this small little town. They're in their own little world. So they start questioning their own beliefs. They start having these thoughts like, am I a bad person? You know, I, I do silly things, but it does, am I a bad person? They go back home uh, and Uncle Jesse's, you know, they t- talk to their uncle about it, but their uncle isn't 
agreeing with them. He's like, no, this is our Southern heritage. This is our pride. This is what we want to do. We don't have to make them Trump supporters or whatever. We don't have to make them overtly awful people, but just in their minds, logically, the whole movie have what we've been doing and what we have been representing. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? And we're going to end the film without them really knowing, because even today, there's still so much debate on what certain things mean, what certain symbols mean to different people. Uh, that doesn't make you a good or bad person. I don't want to both sides this, but that's kind of my pitch. I want to do this weird, like psychological idea that these symbols, you know, for some parts of the country, they're just that they're just symbols like, you know, but for a lot of people, they're hurtful things and they're, uh, they're negative things as they should be. But does that ultimately make you a horrible person? I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it there. Okay. All right, Joe. What are your initial thoughts? Any questions you got? Uh, my only real question is for Tristan. Uh, Daisy Duke is like an iconic part of the Dukes of Hazard, and she didn't seem to be in your pitch at all. Is Daisy Duke in your movie? I think Daisy would be someone that they'd come along eventually. Like I want to focus on the two guys and then sort of have them run into Daisy as they're going along. Like I wanted Audrey Hepburn to fill that role and be sort of like the, the friend they meet along the way. who is their like family member that lives in this other part of the country All right. and sort of their guide to a different car, different view of the, of, of the United States. Okay. That's all I had. All right. Um, yeah. My initial thoughts. Um, I, I had the same question for Tristan uh, and you both kind of got into a shift of perspective and, and things like that. But Zach, my question is for you, I get your movie, um, but I don't understand to me how it's a David Lynch film because it doesn't sound, I know you mentioned the word psychological thriller, but it seems more of a political commentary and David Lynch is more about like Mulholland Drive. Yeah, you don't really know I, I, I didn't want to go over my time and get too into it because I figured somebody would ask. Mm -hmm. We can do scenes where, let's say, because I had Zac Efron. Zac Efron's looking in a mirror and, you know, he, he's contemplating to himself, like, am I doing the right, like, am I a good person? And the person in the mirror looking back at him is, yeah, you, you fucking Southern. Yeah, you're a Southern hick. Everyone loves that. There's nothing wrong with you. And that's just getting into his mind. Same with Lucas Till's character. Same with Alexander Daddario's character. We can do things like that throughout the film. Okay. All right. Um, oh, can I, I forgot. I did have another question for Tristan. If uh -huh. I can ask that really quick. Uh, Tristan, my question, other question for you is I feel like the plot of your movie of like going around and seeing outside the world and trying to become better people would have almost fit better if you had set the movie in the original time of the original series of the 70s. I almost feel like the 1950s is almost like too early for what the plot of your movie is and them learning about the racism around. I mean, obviously there's racism in the 1950s, but I just feel like the plot of your movie, it sounds like it would fit more in the 70s than the 50s. So I wondered why you specifically set yours in the 1950s. I picked the 50s because I think it's something that like boomer culture tends to exaggerate is like the good old days and like make America great again, like it was in the 1950s. And I think going back and commenting and saying like, sure, there were cool parts about the 50s, but look at all this bad stuff too. I think that could be a good way to deconstruct some of the narrative around the past of America. 
right. Yeah, that's all I have now. All right. Um, so I want you two to fight it out, but I'm going to, just so we can kind of direct traffic a bit. Uh, Tristan, what uh, did you or did you not like about Zach's pitch? You start. My biggest problem is that it's not a David Lynch movie. Like, sure, there's a cool mirror scene, I guess, with Zach Efron, but, like, that doesn't feel like David Lynch. David Lynch doesn't do stuff like this. I think you want to get into the surrealism with David Lynch. You want to make it feel weird. You want to make it feel off. And I think Dukes of Hazard is not where you're going to do that. And I think this movie doesn't even lend itself to that. Like, it just just sounds like my movie, but worse, because it has David Lynch not being David Lynch as a director. And... I just don't think David Lynch fits at all with your pitch. He doesn't seem like it has any of Lynch's typical tropes, any of his typical actors, any of his typical style. There's nothing in there that says Lynch to me at all. Oh, my, oh I was muted. Sorry. <laughs> That's fair. I and mean, when you go into a project like Dukes of Hazard, if you're David Lynch, I guess I'm trying to figure how I want to word this. He, he, he has, can't go he's not going to go i don't want to say over the top but all the way david lynch there's going to have to be a happy medium especially with a product like dukes of hazard you're going to need the money i don't know like i i don't i don't really know how to respond to that i'm not a big david lynch fan so i was just trying to meet a happy middle all right uh zach anything you want to take down on tristan's pitch or defend against yours yeah, it's the same thing with the 50s. It just seems like an uh, an awkward time because um, you're starting to move into certain moments in American history, certain movements. Um, I mean, what, what, like, what are these things that they're going to see or do that are going to make them, you know, have this change of perspective? Well, they're going to see this era of pre-civil rights America where the – Black people in the country were facing intense discrimination by the police, by the system, by the people of the towns. They're going to see how segregated certain areas of the country are. And I think getting out of their small town area that in the 50s could really show them this, wow, there's this whole movement going on that we didn't even know anything about. Because I think if you move forward into the 70s and something like that, you get to the point where people are sort of following the news more. There's a civil rights, big civil rights movement that's happened. And people are more aware of the issues. And I think if you go back to the 50s, and it could really be something like these guys aren't bad. They're just naive. They just don't know the full extent of what's happening in the country around them. And I think the 50s is that sort of era that people talk about, like the great American olden days. But really, it wasn't at all. Maga. I mean, I, I, I got nothing else like this. was. All right. Um, OK, uh, Joe, I'm still a little torn. So I want to hear what your thoughts are and who you would choose if you were in my shoes. Yeah, I think I'm pretty settled in who I want. It's weird because I like Zach's cast better than his pitch. Uh, and I like Tristan's pitch better than his cast. I feel like Zach's cast fits what I would expect out of a 2020 Dukes of Hazard movie. Um, obviously, I wouldn't expect to see Tristan's cast in a 2020 Dukes of Hazard movie because they're all dead. But... Um, I, I don't know if the plot of Tristan's movie matches his cast. I don't know if I want to see Chris Farley and John Candy tackle like racism in 1950s America. But I just don't know if Zach's movie is a David Lynch movie necessarily. And I don't know necessarily if that cast fits a David Lynch movie. And so I think 
to some extent, I think Chris Farley and John Candy can't, it's possible for them to be more serious. I've seen John Candy be more serious in moments in movies like Uncle Buck and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. So I think there's more potential in Tristan's movie being good. So I'm going to go with Tristan's movie, but it's not, it's not a runaway for me. It's pretty close. Okay. Um, yeah, I, my thoughts are, are the same as Joe's in a way. It's, it's kind of back and forth because I don't think the cast of either of your movies matches the director either of you chose. Um, but I think one of you had the task of making a movie, a David Lynch movie specifically, and I just don't know if you came through making it like that. You kind of pitched the movie you wanted to do and then just threw him in as the director. Um, but I do, I like your cast if it was directed by someone else. And I like your pitch if it was a little more David Lynch. Um, Tristan, I'm not completely sold on yours. You have, you cast all dead actors and actresses and you could have thrown Marilyn Monroe in as Daisy Duke. And that would have been like, knock it out of the park casting you would have won the point basically by that. And she has history working with Billy Wilder. So I thought as soon as you said that, I thought she was going to be your Daisy Duke. I feel like your pitch was weakened by, by that. Um, but overall, I'd say the movie I'd be more interested in, even though I don't think 1950s is the correct uh, time period for it, because that was before all the civil rights movements. I think it would be more relevant to set it in either the 60s or 70s. I do think overall... Um, Tristan's movie felt more like a Dukes of Hazard movie, and I liked his rule usage a little better. So that was kind of my my tiebreaker. So I'm going to go with Tristan for the first point. All right. And we do have one live comment. So uh, Spinner58 says, uh, Civil rights didn't happen until the 60s. Racism was the same in city and rural. Uh, Travel wouldn't have shown anything different in the 50s. My only thing against that is I would say that I feel like if you put the people of Hazard were all white, then maybe they didn't really see the racism firsthand and they weren't just exposed to it because everyone around them was white. And so that was kind of what I thought he was kind of going with his pitch. Yeah, I, I, I saw where he was going with it. I just think if you did set that in the 60s, you could have then had them go from the small town to seeing you know Martin Luther King yeah. and seeing the civil rights movement that was actually happening or set it in a small town and have them go out and it's the seventies and all those things had already happened. The fifties didn't feel like the right timeline um, for you, but I, I liked uh, the pitch overall, uh, but it was a narrow victory. So thanks for having what, what might be the hardest decision of the night on our first pitch. Yeah. Um, right. But Zach, Zach, uh, you narrowly lost that, that, that one. Was, so what movie, what movie are we? That was my worst one. I, I don't, uh, is that to me? Okay. Um, yep. Let's go. Let's go. Power Rangers. All right. So Power Rangers, uh, based off the classic uh, show. There's been a bunch of movies, but we're basing this uh, reboot off the uh, 2017 Power Rangers that got a 49% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, it was directed by Dean Israelite, uh, starring Dakry Montgomery, Naomi Scott, R.J. Uh, Siler or Kyler and uh, Ludie Lynn and Becky G. 
It's about a group of high school students who are infused with unique superpowers, harness their abilities uh, in order to save the world against a crazy-ass character played by Elizabeth Banks. Um, pretty much all you need to know about Power Rangers. It's basically live-action uh, toys that fight. So, uh, Zach, did you say you're starting? Yeah, I'll go ahead and start. All right, let's hear it. Uh, we're going to go ahead and do Power Rangers, the Lego movie. Uh, we're going to take Chris McKay from Lego Batman. Tom Holland will play our Red Ranger, who's our leader. Haley Steinfeld, our Blue Ranger. She's Sprouse, the Green Ranger, kind of our goofball. They're all going to be, you know, funny, but he's kind of our over-the-top goof. Catherine Langford is the Pink Ranger, our, our, our girl power. David, I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Uh, Mazus, uh, he played Bruce Wayne in Gotham. Uh, the Black Ranger. Giancarlo Esposito as Zordon. Batista will be Goldar. Lord Zed will be Patrick Warburton. And Rita Repulsa will be played by Colby Smulders. And what I want to do with Power Rangers is kind of do what we did with Lego Batman. This is a silly concept. It just it was made for toys. It, it, some of it is just ridiculous. But there is a like there's a medium like they did with Lego Batman, where even hardcore Batman fans loved the movie, even though they poked fun at some of the more ridiculous things that. Uh, the character does or the, the movie franchises do. Uh, so they're, we're going to poke fun at this concept. You know, we're going to have this Lord Zed, this, you know, he's the husband of Rita Repulsa. He's this big intimidating character, but we're going to kind of give him Patrick Warburton's voice. So you know, mostly he's a, com a comedic voice. Uh, Colby Smulders done some comedic things. She was an Avenger. She was, uh, I think she only had like two or three lines, but she was Wonder Woman in the original Lego movie. And we're just going to do the Power Rangers story. They're going to get their powers. Uh, they're going to come together as a team. Uh, they're going to defeat Goldar, who's kind of our big brooding um, villain. He's kind of our muscle. Lord Zed appears to be our leader, but he do a twist. The real villain will be Rita Repulsa, disguised as the Pink Ranger, so that she'll she'll kind of it'll kind of be this big twist towards the end of the movie where Catherine Langford's character will end up being Colby Smulders, Rita Repulsa. And of course they have to defeat her from destroying. Yeah. That's basically what I want to do. Lego power. Rangers. All right. Okay. I'm down for a Lego power Rangers. Uh, Tristan, what do you got for me? I also want Lego power Rangers, uh, but right. I went in a slightly different direction. I aim more towards the original Lego movie. So I brought back the direct directors of Phil Lord and Chris Miller. And I went with that sort of big scale event of the Lego movie where they give them the opportunity to sort of cross over with the wider span of Lego characters and, and Warner Brothers franchises. But since Lego was recently bought by Universal, I think now's a chance to go with Universal characters. So you have the, the same villains as he had. I had Rita Repulsa. And 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 uh, Lord Zen, and they're trying to capture the whole wider Lego universe. So we bring in, you know, Lego uh, set of Lego Warner Brothers characters. You have Universal characters that cross over with dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. You know, Power Rangers love the dinosaurs. That they were sort of like entrenched with dinosaurs in some of the shows, and they cross over with Optimus Prime from Transformers. I think it's kind of fun. Power Rangers are basically a show that sold toys. So I think crossing over with these kind of toy franchises would be really fun. And you even have a role for Vin Diesel as Lego Don from Fast and Furious. He's a 
power car driver of, of the Lego world, and he's sort of similar to Batman in the original Lego movie, where he's not in it a ton, but he's sort of like the comedic relief. He plays everything very serious. He's all about family. He's all about what's good for his family, what's good for the, the whole Lego universe. He's trying to race to save the world, and the plot follows the Power Rangers as they team up with these various heroes from across the universe of Lego universal characters. And they have to fight against Vera Repulsa and Lord Zen as they work to destroy the entire universe. Uh, my cast here, the Red Ranger, I have is Chris Hemsworth. The pink is Anna Kendrick. The blue is Donald Glover. The yellow is Aulia Cavalho. I can't say her name very well, but she was a lead woman in Moana. She was very great in that, and she's sort of having this mini fighting career now and other things. And I also have the uh, Black Ranger. I don't know what that was. Just heard a demon through the speakers, I think. And my my uh, Lord Zen is voiced by Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And my Rita Repulsa is uh, the woman from Halloween. Remember her name off the top of my head now? I didn't write it down. Oh, um, like the lead Jamie, Jamie from... Lee Curtis. Yeah, Jamie um, Curtis. I think she had a fun role in Knives Out. It would be fun to see her do, do another sort of villainous role, especially if it's his voice acting. She has an iconic, recognizable voice that people all know, and I think it would be fun to hear that voice played Rita Repulsa. And that's my pitch. All right. Cool. Um, Joe, uh, you got any questions for him? Yeah, I kind of have opposite questions for each of them. Uh, I'll start with uh, Zach. Zach, a lot of the Lego movie, like the original Lego movie, it brought in characters from outside of the, you know, kind of Lego world. It brought in characters from like various properties. Why didn't you want to bring in anyone from very other various properties and kind of just stick to the Power Rangers? You're muted. You're muted. In the Lego movie, you can bring in all these characters because they're all playing around uh, Chris Pratt's character. They're all, you know, the, the main attraction isn't Batman. The main attraction isn't uh, the Justice League or any of these other characters they bring in. The character is uh, the main character is Chris Pratt. Emmett, I think I believe that was his name. So if you start bringing in all these other characters you're taking away from the power okay. your, my, your mic's a little messed up I got it my was like a Batman which didn't take away those outside characters yeah Zach your mic got messed up somehow when you moved I don't know before you sounded clear but now it's like static I don't know if it got covered up or something but yeah you're, one second. you're staticky um yeah. All right. Uh, okay. So, you just for, oh, yeah, your question. Yeah, I get what he was saying. I understood basically what he was saying. My question for Tristan is uh, basically kind of the opposite of why, when you have a Power Rangers movie, what, why did you want to bring in characters from other franchises into your Lego Power Rangers movie when kind of Lego Batman stuck to basically just Batman characters until like kind of the very end? I think one of the big fun things that the original Power Rangers series all did across all the different shows they had was these big crossovers between whether it was other Power Rangers, whether it was other Ninja Turtles, they had a crossover with Ninja Turtles. So I think having these crossovers with 
Jurassic Park and Transformers, they're not going to be the main focus. It's still going to be focused in the Transform or in the Power Rangers as the main characters. But I think that pays tribute to the fun kind of whimsical ridiculousness of the original Power Rangers series is that they're not just crossing over with other Power Rangers, they're crossing over with all kinds of other characters from other movies. All right, and we lost Zach, so I don't know what happened if he was just switching his mic in and out or what, but no Zach right now. So, oh, he's back. Coming back in, I believe, right? Um, yeah, I'd say since Zach's not in yet, Tristan, my, my big question for you, um, I guess would be, I'm going to have this question for both of you. So I want to ask you first, all of the Lego movies have really had this theme of, um, like they've all had good messages and they're for kids. So you, what's, what's like the message in your movie that it's going to really push for? I think Power Rangers is all about like teamwork and working together and being able to rely on your friends and the people around you. So I think that's something that would be at the core of this movie is Power Rangers having to not just rely on each other as Rangers, but to rely on Don from Fast and Furious to do the right thing and to rely on, you know, the Doc from Jurassic Park to do the right thing. And I think it shows people relying on each other and people being powers of good together as one big force for good. Okay. All right, I like that answer. Zach, can you hear us? Yeah. yeah. Can you hear me now? Yeah. 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 Jesus Christ. No, I it pulls up something that was like, uh, your microphone is working with another app. And I'm like, oh, I don't have another app open on my laptop. Oh. What a nightmare. All right. So I don't even remember where the we question were. We left okay, off. So here's here's where we left off at. Tristan was, uh, he just answered my question. Joe was uh, asking him a question, and Zach uh, got deleted off here. So, Zach, I'll ask you my question, and then we'll get to the, the fights. Because Tristan answered this. Tristan, or uh, Zach, what is the, like, lesson being learned in your movie? Because that's a big thing for all the Lego movies is having, like, a good message for the family. That With the ultimate goal of any of these superhero team-up movies – you have to work together to bring uh, to bring down the bad guys, the super bads. Okay. All right. Um, so other than that, cool. Uh, Zach, if you remember what Tristan's pitch was, what did you like about it? What do you want to think about it? <laughs> it just sounds like the Lego movie again, uh, except with the Power Rangers. If you're bringing in all these universal characters. And don't get me wrong, I would love to see uh, Don from uh, – Fast and Furious be a Lego character. I think that'd be cool. But it just sounds like you're what should be the draw should be the Power Rangers, and you're just bringing in all these other extra characters that are going to cr- cr- uh, crowd the screen. Uh, you know, that, 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 that's ultimately my biggest thing with it is what made the Lego movie. What I was saying before all that static started. What made it it why you could bring in all these characters is what you had a straight man to play off. Well, not you had a straight man and a newbie to play off all these characters and really explore this world. Cause who gives a shit about Emmett? Um, whereas if you're going to focus on a franchise, you should be focusing on that franchise. Okay. And my counter to that, I mentioned a little bit earlier when I think you were offline, but power Rangers crosses over all the time. 
and they crossed over with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. They crossed over with other Power Ranger shows. They cross over all the time, and I think that's part of the core of Power Rangers. And I think when you're making a Power Ranger movie, part of that is to go bigger, like take what the show does and just make it as a little bit bigger and still have that core theme of the Power Rangers working together and fighting the bad guys, but give it a bigger sense of scale. And I think that crossing it over with these universal characters gives it that sense of scale while still maintaining the focus on the core Rangers. You're still following them through their story. The other characters come in and work along with them once in a while, and they're there in the story throughout the story, but it's still focused on the Power Rangers. And it's still focused on their experiences and their like perspective, you know? And I think that's, that's definitely part of the core of the original series. And I think bringing that up into a big scale, universal, literally universal scale, I think is something that would be really interesting and really exciting for a Power Rangers uh, fan and for a Universal fan as a whole. Anything else you guys got to say or should we get to the ruling? With all the messiness of this one, I mean, unless Justin, you got something to say, I just want to get to the ruling. Yeah, my one little point against series is that it just feels a little too small to be a to be a movie of Power Rangers, and I think that's the biggest knock I have on it is that it doesn't have that sense of oh, this is Power Rangers, but even bigger than ever. I think it just feels like any kind of Power Rangers story, and not like Power Rangers the movie. Yeah. All right, uh, Joe, what do you what do you uh, got for us? Yeah, I, I, I hear what Tristan's saying about Zach's being maybe too small or anything, and maybe it's because I don't care enough about the Power Rangers. But I feel like if you do Tristan's thing and have them cross over with all of the other Universal movies or a lot of the Universal properties, I'm going to watch this and be like, this is just the Lego movie again. And I feel like going more into the Power Rangers and their story and all that seems more, and doing it in Lego form seems more interesting to me and focusing on the Power Rangers. So I'm, I think I'm going to go with that. Right. Um, okay, it's tough because I feel like Zach pitched a better Power Rangers movie and um, Tristan pitched a better like Lego movie um, as far as those go. Obviously, they're both Lego movies. Um, so it's a little tough because I think Tristan used the rule better, um, but but Zach stuck truer to the source material. But I think my deciding factor is to Tristan's last point, he said that Zach's movie feels a little too small to be a uh, Lego movie. And I think he's right about that. I think that for a Power Rangers movie as a Lego movie to succeed, you need to have more characters from other um, things in there because even the Batman movie, which Batman is a huge, huge property had a ton of other characters from other properties in it. You know, you had Sauron and Bruce the Shark and all of the villains from other properties. And if Zach had just done that and introduced the Power Rangers were fighting other things, I think he would have won. But I like basically Tristan's movie sounds like the Batman movie, except you, instead of bringing in a bunch of uh, villains from other properties, you bring in a bunch of heroes for them to work with. So I like the kind of twist on that. So I'm going to go with Tristan and disagree with Joe a little on that one. Um, but both of you pitched the Lego bat, uh, Power Rangers, which was, uh, I think, the best rule choice for that movie. I liked uh, both both pitches a lot. So, and we have again, another, barely edged it out. We have another Alex Gibson comment that I agree with. He said, Lego is the perfect rule for this. I think either pitch winning is defensible. Yeah. Yeah, I was I interested in like, which approach are you going to take to Lego movie? And I think 
I mean, any win would have been good there. I think that's a perfect rule choice for the Power Rangers. Lego that's, Power yeah, Rangers is so much fun. Yeah. No, no, yeah. There are some of them where you could do a bunch of different things. I felt like Lego Power Rangers was probably the most obvious. Yeah. Like, we should, we should just make this what it is. All right. So, uh, one, one, and judges, because I haven't been on when there's only been two. Yeah. 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 You got to win over basically the one, the one person, but you guys have been so close. It, it's two nothing, but it feels a lot closer than that because I could have won either way, despite like maybe if there was like one or two points made, I could have uh, won a different way with it. So, Zach, you got to win here, uh, this next one. So, maybe go with one you're pretty confident about. What do we got next? Uh, let me scroll through. Uh, let's do Scooby. I'll let Tristan go first on this one. Zach, right. can you uh, mute your or like turn your vibration off on your phone for notifications? Yeah, oh, yeah, that's what we're hearing. It's making me jump every time I hear it. <laughs> I look down and then I just hear that. I thought I needed right. the fucking chat. <laughs> All right, Tristan, what one are you going with? So we're going with Scooby Doo, which is okay. from uh, 2002. It got a 30% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is way too low because I love this movie. Oh, I hate it. I love Scooby Doo. It's so bad and it's so good. Uh, it's directed by Raja Gosnell. Uh, it stars Freddie Prince Jr., Sarah Michelle Geller, Matthew Lillard, and Linda Cardellini. Um, it says after in. Acrimonious breakup. The Mystery Inc. gang are individually brought to an island uh, resort to investigate strange goings on. Uh, so that's really all you need to know. Other than Scrappy Doo turns into a big monster. It's pretty crazy. Um, so Tristan, what's your what's your Scooby Doo pitch? I'll start off and say I also love this original Scooby Doo movie. It's so campy and like ridiculous, but it's kind of fun. So I wanted to sort of capture that kind of fun tone. So I went with Scooby Doo the musical. And my director is James Gunn. Uh, he was a writer on the first two Scooby-Doo movies, but his direction sort of never got to take off in, in those movies. And now he's obviously became a, nearly a household name through the MCU. So I think giving him a chance to do Scooby-Doo again and make it campy and fun would be an interesting thing for him to do. And my plot here is that the gang must investigate a local music festival that's coming to Crystal Cove after ghosts are seen during a concert proclaiming the grounds is cursed. With only 24 hours until the festival begins, the gang must solve the mystery in time before the groovy music fans risk facing the ghosts of music past. And I made mine entirely a jukebox musical with 70s songs, uh, 60s and sort of late 60s, early 70s songs around the era of the original Scooby-Doo show. So rather than having them do original songs, it's all sort of like animated Scooby or, or live action, but Scooby-Doo sort of style versions of classic songs from that era. And my cast here is Velma is played by Emma Stone. Daphne is played by Haley Seinfeld. Fred is played by Zac Efron. And Shaggy is played by Jack Quaid, who's the lead guy of the boys. who's sort of like the pro tag of the boys. And Scooby is voiced, of course, by Frank Welker. No one else should be doing Scooby. He's the OG. And he's, he's doing the voice here. And I also have the Hex Girls. They were one of the iconic Scooby-Doo characters. And I think if you're doing a Scooby-Doo musical about a music festival, you got to bring in the Hex Girls as a band that's playing at the festival. So my Hex Girls are Anna Kendrick, Kristen Bell, and Kristen Stewart. And 
like the Hesker's War in the show, they're sort of these like emo goth type caricatures that are fun and ridiculous and they're performing at the concert venue with the that's supposedly happening here. Uh unless the ghosts have anything to say about it. So meet up with the gang, obviously they're a little older. You know, I cast them in actors that are sort of in like their twenties and early thirties and we meet the gang now, they've all finished school, they're trying to sort of figure out what to do with their adult lives now. And there's some character conflict. So Velma has applied for a master's program at MIT. Daphne's trying to be a news host. So we see this, this sort of presence of the gang is, is maybe moving forward with their lives, but still wanting to be mystery solvers and still being invested in this mystery solving life they have and not wanting to leave it behind. And we also get to meet their parents. So I think that's a fun cameo potential. You can bring in Freddie Prinze Jr. as Fred's dad or Matthew, Matthew Lillard as Shaggy's dad. Anyone you want to bring in that could cameo in reference back to the old movies or to the old show would be a fun nod. And you also get to see a look at Crystal Cove, their hometown. So you get to see their lives where they've become sort of like small town celebrities among the young people. And the sort of infamous among the old generation, like all oh, those troublemaking, mystery-solving people who are making this town into like a tourist attraction for these people who love the Scooby gang. You bring in some references to the icons of the past shows. So there's like a tourist museum and shops and stuff like that. Shaggy works as staff at a tourist gift shop where he's selling like knockoff Scooby t-shirts and, and bad Scooby snack knockoff snacks and things like that. And like I said, it's a jukebox musical. So you can bring in artists to sort of play these newer versions of older songs and tribute the era that Scooby-Doo originally started in, but also have that sort of theme of like generational conflict that's sort of in the original show, like these young people, these youth and revolts type people. And I think that could bring that in there. So we have plenty of suspicious characters that are sort of the iconic elements of Scooby-Doo. You have the owner of the festival. Maybe he's trying to do it for financial gain. You have the leading band. Maybe they're trying to do it for attention. You have the mayor. Maybe he's trying to scare people away for some reason. And the gang investigates, as they typically do, they find effects. They find things like that. They say, oh, this, maybe this isn't ghosts. Maybe there was stage effects. And uh, in the end, they find out that the people behind the monsters in this case were actually their parents and the older people of the town who were trying to scare away tourists and scare the gang into sort of growing up and getting out of their hometown and, and doing something other than solving mysteries. So that's sort of the twist at the end is like, oh, it wasn't some criminal. It was the parents of us trying to scare us into living our adult lives. And in the end, there the concert goes on because, like I said, there was no ghosts. And we have a big performance by the Hex Girls at the very end. And in classic Scooby fashion, there's the ghosts come out during the concert and everyone gets scared for a second. But it turns out it was just Scooby playing with the effects, trying to scare everybody. And in the end, the gang takes on their adult jobs, learning they can grow up and be adults while still maintaining their mystery solving. So Felma goes to MIT after hearing about a ghost that haunts the campus. Daphne takes a job at a TV studio after hearing of hearing of a mysterious electrical occurrences in the studio. Shaggy gets a job in California, writing a movie about stories with the gang. So you get sort of this element that the, the gang is moving forward, but they're also maintaining their love for mystery solving. They're maintaining their connections to each other. They're not fully just leaving that world behind. They're finding a balance between adulthood and their youthful energy of being the crime solving gang that we all know and love. And that's my pitch. All right, that was a long Scooby-Doo pitch. We'll see. All right. 
That's a good pitch, though. Uh, you got a lot to compete with over there, Zach. What do we got? I also did uh, Scooby-Doo the musical. Uh, there's a lot you can do here. I did director uh, Chris Lord, Phil Miller. Dave Franco will be my Fred. Chloe Grace Moretz is my Daphne. Anya Taylor-Joy is my Velma. Ezra Miller will be my Shaggy, like Tristan said. Frank Welker for Scooby-Doo, obviously. Of course. Uh, and then Seth MacFarlane will voice all of my villains. Now, I hate the original Scooby-Doo movie, but that's because I'm a huge fan of the cartoon. So we're going to rip a bit off Scooby-Doo, too. But we're going to do the a lot of the villains from the original show. Now, there were several. I don't want to do the ones that were in that movie. So we're going to do more like the Spooky Space Ghost, the Creeper, the Phantom Shadows, uh, Ghost Clown. Those four will be my main ones. You can have a couple others pop in, like the, the Frankenstein monster or whatever. Uh, basically, these the group has grown older. You know, they're starting to kind of, uh, like in the first movie, they're kind of going blase. Like, it's just um, uh, going through the motions for every mystery. They're like, oh, God, here, like, this clue's going to be here. This clue's going to be there. When suddenly... They see a robbery take place, and out comes the spooky space ghost with that creepy laugh um, from the airfield. If any of you have seen that episode, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, they immediately give chase, but the ghost gets away. The next night, they're doing an interview, and the phantom shadows appear on the wall with the, the, the chain rattling. I used to call them the chain rattling ghosts on when I was a kid. Uh, and then they disappear, and all of a sudden, the gang's starting to get a little worried, like, what's going on here? We've put these people away. And they don't know, like Scooby-Doo 2, if they're real or are they fake. Now, obviously, we're going to know they're fake because it's a movie. But these villains are doing real crimes, hurting real people. You know, you go through your standard Scooby-Doo. They, the gang finds clues, figures out what the people are doing these crimes. And throughout the movie, what I want to have happen is there's this Scooby-Doo fan club. There's this obsessive group. Uh, each character has one. I have one played by Zendaya, uh, Jake Johnson, Steve Buscemi, where they're just obsessed with the big Electro from Amazing Spider-Man 2. They're just obsessed with the group, and they'll end up actually being the people behind the mask. I know I said Seth MacFarlane's doing the voices, but I don't want to give it away uh, right away because they're all, you know, they want to get back on this group for kind of, you know, pushing them aside like you're just the weirdos that are really into us. Uh, the musical will come in. If you've ever watched the 60s, uh, Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? In the last season and a half, or half half season, because I had a box set of four DVDs. So the last like half and a DVD, there were songs in each episode through a uh, chase scene. And those were the songs that would be throughout the movies. Now, we would have original songs. Shaggy and Scooby sing a song about eating food. Uh, I like Fred as kind of this cocky dick. So he'll sing a song about how great he is. Um, find a place to sing the theme song. That would be my pitch for the Scooby-Doo movie. Okay, interesting pitches. I'm a big fan of the original Scooby-Doo show. And like I said, I like the movies. So I'm uh, I'm a fan of both pitches. There are elements uh, in both, I think, uh, could be improved or, or attacked. So, Joe, what do you what do you got for me? So my question for Zach is Lord Miller seemed to be very like self not self-referential, but they put like a lot of like hidden jokes and stuff like that in their movie and jokes that are kind of inside jokes, but your movie didn't really seem to have anything like that. And is there 
is there moments like that in your movie that you just don't talk about, or does there? Yeah, of course, of course. When you like when you're dealing with Chris Lord and Phil Miller, you're gonna have those inside jokes, or there's little like, or those kind of moments, sort of like how and Tristan brought this up in the in the original Scooby Doo movie, uh, James Gunn wanted to do like a Brady Bunch movie type of thing, but a little more adult jokes, um, and you can see some of them. Uh, now, they're obviously we're not going to have Shaggy smoking weed, but there's going to be like little jokes to like, okay, you know, Shaggy's kind of a stoner. Daphne's very, uh, very vain. Uh, Thelma's a little bit over the top of his dork. Dave, uh, Fred's a, a dick, uh, kind of a cocky jerk. So we'll do things like that throughout the film. Seth MacFarlane voicing the villains. I'm sure I can, we can get uh, funny lines out of that. Like how ludicrous is it that they believe that uh, this spooky space creature was actually a real ghost? That, that kind of stuff. Okay. And then my question for Tristan is I feel like James Gunn, I mean, he's done Guardians of the Galaxy, but I feel like he, especially with his Scooby-Doo that he wanted to do, like Zach said, he wanted to do a more somewhat darker, I would say darker, but more adult, like a hard PG-13 type of movie. But your movie seems kind of similar to the first one where it is kind of a family-friendly movie. So why? Is your movie something James Gunn would want to do when it's something he's done before? Well, and he wasn't think, even really interested in doing it the first time. I think this gives him full creative control, and I think having the characters be older, moving on with their lives into adulthood, sort of lets him give it that more serious tone. And I think, I think that would let him bring in that element of maturity that he was going for, and that element of like, oh, we we were these young kids solving these crimes, and now we're a little bit older. Maybe maybe we're out of out of our element here. And I think it could still aim for families in that way while still being like a harder PG-13 rating. But I think Scooby-Doo ultimately should aim for like families and kids, kids watch the new Scoob movie and families like that too. And I think Scooby-Doo should aim for like a wider bracket and sure it can get young adults and get kids. It can get people our age who grew up watching the show as kids. And I think James Gunn can get that wide aim, you know, and capture anyone who could be interested in watching Scooby-Doo and give them something to chew on, rather than just focusing on one group. All right. All right. All right um, I, I think, yeah, as far as, as far as questions go, I think I think uh, both of you pitched a pretty clear Scooby-Doo movie. Um, I'm leaning a, a little bit towards one way, but I'd say um, just, just to tech each other, see if... Uh, it changes my mind. So, Zach, why don't you start? Well, for one, with casting, we've already seen Zach Efron as Fred in Scoob. It, to, for me, it wasn't very good, but that, I don't think the voice cast in that movie was any good. How much of your film is going into, like, the lore of Scooby-Doo? Like, have they met the Hex Girls before? Because they're, you know, as you've said, and kind of in my pitch, too, they're a little bit older. They're kind of going through the motions, like, we've done this before. We know what's going on. Where where are you coming in with the lore and the continuity of Scooby Doo? So my lore words just came out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah, my continuity of Scooby Doo is that all those classic uh, mysteries we've seen them solve in the show have happened, and like like I said, they're sort of like small town celebrities in their hometown, and there's posters for their iconic villains. There's museums dedicated to things from their past. There's stores selling like Scooby Doo T-shirts. So there's the iconography of the original show is there. And I think that's the lore. Of course, they've met the high schools before. They're sort of reuniting at this festival. So the gang that we know is the gang on this movie. They're just a little bit older, and they've done all the stuff they've seen them do. 
Yeah, because it kind of sounds like we're you're you're combining a bunch of the, like wasn't Daphne a reporter or news anchor in the Zombie Island movie? Uh, you know, we both kind of have Fred as the same way, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I want to pay tribute to the entire lore of Scooby Doo. I want to tribute the movies. I want to tribute the show. I want to tribute everything that people love about Scooby Doo. People don't just what like the original Where Are You show, even though that has a lot of the iconic villains. So I want to bring in elements. I brought in some stuff from the most recent show. I think it was Mystery Inc. was a pretty popular revival of the Scooby Doo show from a few years ago, where they focus on their hometown a little bit more. And I wanted to bring that into it too. So I wanted to bring elements of all the sort of big iconic elements of Scooby-Doo into, into this movie. Can, can I ask a, a, a secondary question? Mm -hmm. uh, Tristan, uh, you said you want to bring in lore from various Scooby-Doo. Uh, the Scooby-Doo I grew up on was a pup named Scooby-Doo. That's the Scooby-Doo I'm most familiar with. So what from a pup named Scooby-Doo did you bring into your- Tristan, ignore that question. No one, no one needs to, no one knows what that even is. Well, even we can definitely Scooby-Doo scooby 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 so. scooby right. I'm going to be honest. I, I, think I, I think I have my my judgment call here. I don't really need to hear anything else. Joe, what do you, what do you uh, think after the pitches? I think for me, the casting, I can go either way. I don't – none of the casting really blew me away. They're all just kind of fine for both of them. Uh, I do like Seth MacFarlane doing the vo various voices of the villains. I feel like as far as picking picking a director that fits their movie, I feel like Zach's I like Zach's choice better for his movie. I still don't know if I'm completely sold on James Gunn doing the movie that Tristan pitched. But overall, I also feel like as far as use of the rule, I feel like it, the musical fits better with what Tristan pitched. I don't know if I necessarily. I can see Zach's movie without it being a musical. I think being a musical fits within Tristan's movie better, and I like Tristan's pitch overall better, so I'm going to go with Tristan. Okay. All right. Um, I don't know. With mine, I, I think you both did a good job doing a, a Scooby-Doo pitch uh, with similar tones. You both made it a musical, but I think there's a couple things that, that separate it for me. The old show has a ton of classic songs. So if you're going to make it a musical, do what Zach did. And don't have, like, I don't know, Magic Carpet Ride, you know, being in it. I, that's what I picture in, like, Tristan's movie. I like the use of the music better for Zach. Um, I think the casting is – it could go either way because I think overall I like Zach's cast better. But I'm, like, almost out of a movie if it says Seth, Seth MacFarlane's in it. Um and I think I don't need a ghost sounding like Peter Griffin and another ghost sounding like Stewie because he can only do like four voices. Um, but that being said, I like the musical aspect better in Zach's. I like the directing choice better for Zach's. I don't need to see James Gunn do anything that's for families. Um, I know he wrote, you know, some of the Scooby-Doo movies, which I liked, but those movies aren't actually that good. Um, and I don't need to see him. I, I would like a Scooby-Doo movie that's more self-referential for people who grew up with it and be like darker if it's James Gunn. And I just didn't didn't see that out of it. So I, I think uh, Zach takes this point for me. And I'm going to go with Zach uh, getting his first point of the night. I like the, the music idea. That was a really good. Uh, that was pitch. probably second on like this is probably a good idea, like most obvious choice here. Yeah. I mean, horror, horror and Scooby-Doo, but. That's too we talked about that before we went on, and Joe and I were like, 
I, it's kind of a cop out to do a horror movie for Scooby Doo, but you could do a horror movie for Scooby Doo and just make it like an R-rated horror movie and make it way different. But neither of you went that direction, so I like the the musical choice. So Tristan, for the first time tonight, you are choosing a movie uh, to do next, uh, and who goes when? I'm gonna go with Lost in Space. All right. And are you gonna go first or second? I'll go first. All right. Um, so Lost in Space came out in 1998. Uh, it got a 28% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is probably too high. Uh, it is directed by Stephen Hopkins. It starred William Hurt, Heather Graham, Matt LeBlanc, and Gary Oldman, as well as some other pretty uh, decent size of actors. Um, this was a big budget movie, and it was supposed to be Matt LeBlanc's big uh, – you know, transition into film, and it did not do that. Uh, the Robinson family was going into space to fight for a chance for humanity. Now they are fighting to live long enough to find a way home. That is what the movie is about, um, according to IMDb. So, uh, Tristan, let's hear your uh, your pitch. So, my Lost in Space used the rule that it has to be directed by David Lynch. And my cast here for Dr. John Robinson is Kyle McLaughlin, a, a Lynch staple. He's been in a ton of Lynch projects from Twin Peaks to all kinds of things. He's sort of a blue velvet, you know, he's like his go-to actor. My Dr. Maureen Robinson, who's the wife of John Robinson, is Laura Dern, another uh, Lynch staple. And with the children, I went for actors who hadn't worked with Lynch before, but I think he would do a good job bringing out some of the elements of their acting ability that would let them shine in these roles. So my daughter is Judy Robinson. She's 19. She's played by Kiernan Shipka. You know her from, from Sabrina in, in Mad Men when she was younger. Uh, Penny Robinson is 17. She's the middle child. She played by uh, Caitlin Dever from Booksmart. She was a co-lead in Booksmart. And in this I have her with Darker hair, it takes after her father more. So we have that sort of middle child complex of her being this. She doesn't exactly look like her mother or her older sister. And she sort of stands out. And the younger child I have is Will Robinson. Uh, he's 13, he's played by Jacob Tremblay. And the robot, iconic robot of Lost in Space is voiced by David Lynch himself. He likes to have small roles like he did in Twin Peaks. And I think he has a very iconic voice, so I think if you had that in there, plus some distortion, plus some robotic effects, it could be fun to have him in that role. So my pitch is that when the Robinson family goes on what should be a routine space trip, the family is forced to put their skills, minds, and knowledge of each other to the test after they're pulled through a, room, a wormhole in space, throwing them to the other side of the galaxy. They awaken from a sort of surrealist dream sequence to find they are no longer alone on the ship. In fact, their entire family has been doubled. With two seemingly identical Robinson families on a lost ship in the middle of nowhere, they must work together to navigate home. But something feels off as more and more of the family members start to act strange and uncomfortable. So the real Robinson family is trying to reunite on this ship while outsmarting who they think might be the doppelgangers. Trust begins to run thin as the characters are sort of manipulating each other and working against each other to try and be the surviving family here. Even the audience is not sure who is who. And we have to sort of learn to read these characters and figure out for ourselves to use the doppelgangers. Lynch uses doppelgangers all the time. Twin Peaks, Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive. So I think he'd have a good time with like an entire cast of doppelgangers and be able to have these 
these off-putting scenes, these surrealist scenes where you're not you're very uncomfortable even when people are just doing normal things where you're not quite sure who is who, who to trust, who you can't trust. It'd be a great like isolated interpersonal horror with the surrealist edge that Lynch would love to throw in there. You know, you had that word pulse sequence where you can kind of go all out with the surrealism and you had the strangeness of the doppelgangers and the family trying to suss out who the imposters are. The betrayal happens when one Will Robinson, who we think to be the doppelganger, is thrown out of an airlock and that sort of throws things into high gear where suddenly they realize like, oh, only one family is going to make it out of this and we have to be the real ones who survive. And in the finale, one of the two remaining Dr. Robinsons, as well as a robot, have to sacrifice themselves to save the others. And at the end, we never truly know which of the people are doppelgangers, even as the movie plays it kind of straight at the end that, oh, the good guys won, but we're not totally sure if they did. And in the end, the ship returns to Earth with only one family remaining, but we're not totally sure. Is it all doppelgangers? Is it no doppelgangers? Is one or two of them doppelgangers? We have that ambiguous ending that Lynch would love to do, where you want to go back and watch it again and again and figure out the code of how to read the movie, how to know who's doppelgangers, who's who's not. And that's my pitch. All right. Mm-hmm. I'm interested. Zach, what do you got? Okay, my Lost in Space stars dead actors. So, for my director, we're going with Alfred Hitchcock. Because we're going to make this kind of a horror. Tristan, when I... I didn't mean to laugh at your pitch. I was just because with the uh, the you kept saying the doppelganger. I kept thinking of Among Us, and then it just made me laugh. Um, for John Robinson, we're gonna go Christopher Reeve, uh, Maria Marilyn Monroe, Judy Garland, Natalie Wood, James Dean will play Will Penny. It'll be Natalie Wood. Excuse me, Judy will be played by Judy Garland. We'll go James Dean, Donald West, Jimmy Stewart, and then Doctor Zachary Smith. Good old Vinnie Price, because I like me my Vinnie Price. Uh, and then the robot will be voiced by Heath Ledger because I wanted at least one more uh, more modern actor, even though they're all dead, so it doesn't really matter. Um, we're going to go with an old-school sci-fi horror. We're going to start slow. We're going to get to know these characters, every single one. We're going to know a little bit about them, their motivations, why they're on this uh, mission, heading off to a planet, see if it's livable for humans. So while we're doing the slow build, slowly things are going to start getting sabotaged. Um, all, they're going to go to their food area and they're going to realize there's a little less food in here than there should be. Uh, they're going to go to their, because they're supposed to be like uh, frozen, not frozen in carbonite, but you know, uh, cryogenically frozen, whatever. How, um, that's been sabotaged. They're not going to be able to do that. They got to fix that. They start panicking when all of a sudden their ship has gone off. Uh oh. Gone off. Gone off course, and their heads lost. I yeah. didn't want to. Am I still here? Yeah, 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 yeah. There we go. We heard got a one off course. Uh, the, the ship's going off course. They're going to end up lost. I mean, obviously, the name. So the family starts panicking. Everybody starts panicking. Um, we find we they kind of kick out Jimmy Stewart. He's been kind of acting a little little paranoid. Um, they think they're clear when they kick Jimmy Stewart out through an airlock. Um, another Among Us thing that makes me laugh. Uh, and they think they're safe, but then slowly more bad things start to happen. It becomes, oh, the, uh, the oxygen goes out, so they're running to fix it. And we realize it's Vinnie Price, Dr. Zachary Smith, and then they eventually kick him out. But we're leaving it open to a sequel 
uh, because they're still lost. There's no real way back home. Everyone's kind of like, oh, God. It's like at the end of the thing where they're just so tired and exhausted they don't know what to do next. All right. Um, cool. All right, Joe, what do you got question-wise? All right, yeah, I don't really have a question for Tristan. I, I think I got his movie pretty figured out. My question's for uh, Zach. Uh, one of the most iconic like characters in like sci-fi almost and like in that kind of era of television is Will Robinson and it didn't really sound like your movie had Will Robinson in it so that was oh, like, uh, uh, I cuz I skipped over uh James Dean Will Robinson All right. All right. Okay, that's all I have. Not that I skipped over it but I I started right. Yeah. Yeah, at one point I think you you read like who Got each person was playing, and then you just read names and you stopped saying who they were playing. But yeah, I think yeah, I got because, I, all because I those. Judy Garland playing Judy, so I just read Judy Garland and then went down and I, I was like, oh, yeah, I got to say names. Yeah. Who, who was I know Vincent Price was uh Dr. Smith or whatever. Who was uh Jimmy Stewart playing? Uh, Donald West, kind of the this uh, uh from what I read yeah. from uh, it's like their, their corporal, this guy, the military man that's supposed to be helping them. Okay, all right, makes sense. Um yeah, I don't have a ton of questions. I, th- I think both of you uh, kind of nailed it. I, I think um, more so than when Zach pitched a David Lynch movie, Tristan really nailed the tone and the themes of like a David Lynch movie would have and a going to rewatch it over and over to see um, what happened in an ambiguous ending. I think those are all the things you kind of need for a David Lynch movie. Um, as far as making this a Hitchcock movie, though, this seems like lost in space needs to kind of, you know, be set in space, be a sci-fi movie. Hitchcock never did anything close to sci-fi or anything like that. So how does Hitchcock fit with uh, lost in space? Well, Hitchcock also never really wanted to do like a straight up slasher like he did with psycho. He, he thought that was going to be more of a TV show. So he he explored different avenues. He explored different things. You know, he's mostly known for like Vertigo and that kind of style of film. So it's in space. You can have different things, but the basis of it is it's kind of this horror, uh, this horror element to it because there's nothing scarier I can think of than being stuck on a spaceship in the middle of space. Okay. So is your movie going to have like? Is your movie going to be like? 2001 a space odyssey in terms of showing ships flying around or is it going to be like the old star trek show where it's just like them set in one spaceship setting and you don't really have special effects uh option two just them set okay. in their ship. that's what i figured all right makes sense um, maybe like one or two exterior shots like they're just in space like there's nobody yeah. around okay that makes sense that that's what i think fits better for a hitchcock movie more like a rope or rear window type setting where it's an enclosed environment. Um, so uh, I'll start with you, Tristan. What did you, uh, what do you want to take down uh, on uh, Zach's pitch? My biggest attack at is the casting. Like sure, they're all good actors individually, but I don't think they fit this, these, these roles. You know, I think the, the characters here are iconically a family. They're young people. They're, you know, teenagers or younger even. And I don't think these, I mean, the actors are all practically, I mean, they're all dead, but I wouldn't imagine they'd be like children in this movie, you know? And I think you roughly had them all be around the same age. And I don't think that captures the family dynamic of Lost in Space. I think it's just like throwing good actors with a good director, but sure, it doesn't fit with Lost in Space. It just feels like 
you have actors doing good performances, but they're not going to be playing the characters we know. They're not going to be playing. Will Robinson is not going to be 10 years old in this movie. You know, he's not going to be a young kid, which is an iconic part of the show. And I went with the younger people. I, I age them up a little bit because it's Lynch. It's a horror movie. You want to go a little bit more serious with it, but I didn't like totally make them adults. And I think that you miss that element in your casting by making them all adults and not having a wider range of ages with the characters. I mean, they don't have to be adults. Like James Dean played a teen. A lot of his movies, Natalie Wood played a teen. A lot of his movies, Judy Garland looked like she was 15 forever. Um, but, but the lost in space, your family element, where does it, where does it come in? I must've missed it. I, because of the among us thing made me laugh. I'm sorry. Uh, they're all a family. So you get that. And Lynch does that a lot with like distrust between people who know each other. And that's the family element. And it brings in, since they have to put the test, how well they know each other and how well they can work with each other. And I think that's an element here. How, how well do you even know your own family? Would you be able to tell them from someone who looks just like them and sort of sounds just like them, but their behavior is a little bit off. And I think that's something that would be built into the Robinson family and built into this movie with the, that element of distrust you bring with the imposters and the element of sort of having to learn to study the people around you and not, are they my family members? Are they not? It puts to test how well you know people. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Um, anything, anything you have against Tristan's pitch Zach? I, I think I brought it up. I know last week we went over two hours and I know we don't want to do that again. So. Well, that's definitely going to happen. We're at hour 27 <laughs> right now. So. And we're, too and far keep over in mind too, too, we're also going to cut. We're also making cuts obviously, because we had some technical issues. So yeah. that, that's a little longer than uh, we, we are, are normally on, but you know what? I, I think I have my decision, um, and I don't know how yeah, so much we'll, we'll kind of change it. So, Joe, what are you? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I kind of agree with what Tristan brought up. Of like, I like the actors in Zach's movie, but I don't know if they fit like what Lost in Space is. Lost in Space is supposed to be like Swiss Family Robinson, but instead of like an island or a jungle or whatever it is, it's space. And I don't know if and like Will Robinson is iconically like this little kid, and I don't know if James Dean who was like early 20s, late teens at the height of his powers really fits the role of Will Robinson. And I like his pitch. I like his plot, but I also like Tristan's pigeon plot. And I think his cast fits his movie more. And I like the use of his rule. Yeah, I think, I, I think, I think Zach was hindered by his rule a lot because there's not really a lot of like dead, like child actors who died when they were children. Yeah, yeah. Un unfortunately, not a lot of dead kids. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, yeah, here's my thing. I think I think Zach had a good pitch. I like Hitchcock in terms of like doing something he's never really done before. It would be interesting to see it. I would probably rather, as far as just a movie goes, I'd rather see a Hitchcock movie than a David Lynch movie. I'm a much bigger fan of Hitchcock. But I think um, while well, Lost in Space is a cool it's about you know i'd love it to be a thriller that's kind of what the movie and the the new show at least are going for the idea behind lost in space that makes it different than star trek that makes it different than a lot of the other space shows is it is a family um lost in space that are trying to survive together and you have a lot of those family elements and i think tristan hit on that better david lynch is a much better director for that uh hitchcock isn't really known for for that and david lynch has, has uh had better 
character development in terms of family and everything. And I liked his, uh, the cast and the age ranges, Tristan even nailing like, okay, this person is 13. This person is 15. Like it just had, he just had a better feel for the, the characters in lost in space. So pitch wise, I think both pitches were good, but lost in space to me, what differentiates it is the characters and the family aspect. So Tristan, for that reason, I'm giving you the point and you are going to have a, uh, a pretty decent lead, uh, which uh, pressure's on now. You gotta, you gotta make a close. Yeah, this and we is have, looking very hot over here. Yeah, we got one. We got one live comment, and it's just. And I agree. It's, I love Zach's cast, especially Vincent Price. And the, the cast is good. I just don't know if it fit. It, yeah, it's it's, awesome. it's really good. Dead actors, because you can just do whatever you want. Like, yeah, they're dead. Like, and they're. Yeah. Yeah. I, like I think if you had, I think if you had chosen like a River Phoenix for Will Robinson and went with someone who was popular when they were a when they were a child, um, you could have really gone with that. Even if someone had passed away when they were like in their forties, but they were famous for being a kid actor, I think you also could have done that. Like Shirley Temple was an option to be one of your people because you could have said this is when she was basically most famous in Hollywood. So. I think um, I think uh, there were aspects you could have changed a little bit to make yours more of a family element, but I you just picked basically the best actors of all time and all threw them into movies. So I would see it, but yeah, I think I think the uh, Tristan just uh, won that one. That was one of my favorite pitches I've ever heard on the show from Tristan. I like that pitch a lot. Yeah, um, that was good. I, as soon yeah. as he pitched, yeah. like, I'm, I'm in trouble. That was, that was a really tough one to fight. As soon as he led with that, too, I was like, ooh, that's going to be really hard for Zach to come back against that one. Yeah. Um, so, Zach, what do are, what are we got next? you you got to win to stay alive here. Let's go ahead. Let's, let's go to Inspector Gadget. Yeah, I've been waiting for this one. I am excited yeah, to see good. what you do with it. Yeah, I'm curious to see what you guys do with it as well, because this is what I would have made my Lego movie. So. I made it a horror comedy with Edgar Wright. All right. Johnny, you want to read the... uh... Well, let's go. Yeah, Zach's getting into his pitch. I'll read a little description. For anyone not familiar with Inspector Gadget, it was a uh, pretty fun cartoon show and a pretty shitty movie. Um, Too shitty. Yeah, yeah, they made a sequel to it. That's right. Uh, It got a 21% of Rotten Tomatoes, which is shockingly high. I thought this would be like an under 10% or for sure. Um, it was directed by David Kellogg. It starred uh, Matthew Broderick after uh, he basically quit acting uh, in movies and started just being a dick all the time. Uh, Rupert Everett and Michelle Tachtenberg, uh, uh plays Penny. So a security guard's dreams come true when he is selected to be transformed into a cybernetic police officer is what uh, this movie is apparently about. I forgot that he was chosen to become the cybernetic guy. So let's, let's hear it. Zach uh, is pitching me a horror, a horror, horror comedy, comedy. I think you horror were saying. Comedy. All right. Let's horror comedy it. with Edgar Wright. Inspector Gadget will be played by Bill Hader. Penny will go with McKenna Grace. And then Claw will be played by Hugo Weaving. Can I, now, no, is the rule you're using is it's a horror movie? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yes, it's a horror movie. That's your rule. Okay. And then we're gonna put some comedy, okay. some comedy into it because we're gonna put Edgar Wright. But it is a horror movie. Uh, what I want to okay. do with this movie, similar to the first Inspector Gadget, we're gonna see that he gets involved in a tragedy. Something blows up. Something horrible happens to Bill Hader. So they choose him to become 
this inspector gadget. Now, where the horror comes in is this is a man that has all kinds of shit coming out of his body. Whatever, whatever he can think of, it comes out of his body. Now, most of the time, it's played for comedy in the Matthew Broderick, French Stewart, and even the cartoon. But if I was a human being and all of a sudden spoons were coming out of my hands whenever I wanted a spoon to come out of my hand, that scared the shit out of me. So we're going to do a little bit of body horror. Uh, Hugo Weaving is a, can just be a creepy guy, creepy actor. Uh, his claw, um, like the show, unlike the movies, we're going to keep him hidden more. Um, so our inspector, he'll still be a good guy. Like he's still a cop. He still knows what he has to do. But Claw wants to get rid of Inspector Gadget, not because he has anything against the guy personally, but just because he wants to get rid of this monstrosity, this this disgusting thing where this is against God, this is against science. What are we doing? This is not right. Um, so they're going to go at each other. Um, Penny McKenna Grace, she's just going to be she her she's going to be kind of almost my main character, like the show. Because the horror is going to come from her perspective of her uncle turning into just this monster. This is against God creation. Um, so not only does Paul obviously not defeat Inspector Gadget, but uh, he get, he gets defeated by Penny and Brain, uh, her dog. We're not going to do a talking dog. I don't think that would fit in with my movie. Um, and then we're going to end our movie with Gadget figuring out his powers. He's kind of it's slowed. He's not, it's not as scary anymore. He's kind of figuring out what he needs to do, but because of what he is, he's become an outcast. All right, Tristan, uh, what do you got for me? All right. I'll get into my rule a little bit into my pitch, but I'll set out with uh, my director, which is Taika Waititi. And my inspector gadget is Steve Carell. My Dr. Claw is Jim Carrey. And my Penny, who uh, was the season niece, the sort of mastermind that's really behind Inspector Gadget, is Millie Bobby Brown. And the Inspector is a cyborg who is, who is outwardly very competent and very efficient at taking on these crimes. But in reality, he's controlled by Penny behind the scenes, who's sort of telling him what to do and giving him the answers essentially, and they have that duality, that relationship that they're keeping a secret from the from the real world, and that gets sort of upended because a news reporter who is instructed to do a day, a sort of a day in the life of Inspector Gadget report, like a, a ride along day of Inspector Gadget, and uh, that reporter is Bill Murray as Bill from Groundhog Day. So Bill Murray is assigned to follow Inspector Gadget along all day long and ask him questions and. And, and see how he's doing it. So, of course, the inspector and Penny have to work extra hard to keep themselves a secret. And meanwhile, on this day that is a ride-along day that should be just a run-of-the-mill day with Petra Gadget investigations, they uh, once again run into Claw, who's played by Jim Carrey. I think Taika Waititi would bring out a really fun uh, mix of crazy 90s Jim Carrey, but also a little bit rain him in a little bit, so he's not just totally ridiculous. And... So they're having to outsmart Claw while also outsmarting Phil, who's starting starting to get wind of the fact that maybe there's more to this Inspector Gadget guy than we seem to think in the media here. And in the end, uh, they all work together, including Phil, to stop Claw. However, the Inspector decides that it's time to give Penny credit for what she's been doing. 
he reveals still he reveals to fill the truth about Penny and his relationship, and that Penny is a mind behind the man, and Penny is praised for her smarts and skills, interviewed by the media, and and sort of taken in stride. Everyone kind of loves that this young little girl is in secret the mastermind behind this famous iconic investigator. So the duo continues to be investigating with Penny openly in the lead with the Spectre Gadget and working together without having to hide it helps the duo become even better. That's my pitch. All right. Okay, Joe, what are your thoughts, uh, questions? What do you got? Uh, I don't really have a question for Zach this round. I think I understand his move. My question is for Tristan, and I guess my thing is, like, why does the interviewer need to be Bill Count? Like, I understand you had to use this Bill Murray rule somewhere, and so this is where you wanted to use it. But why does why does the interviewer reporter have to be Phil Connor from Groundhog Day and literally just not any reporter? Like, what does making it Phil Connors in your movie? Why does that? Why is that the choice? I think it can sort of continue along on Phil's arc from Groundhog Day, where he sort of starts out as this jaded guy in Groundhog Day, and he learns to uh, find love and sort of take people for who they are. And I think he would be able to learn a lesson from the fact that behind this tough, smart uh, Inspector Gadget is actually a young woman. And I think that would be a lesson to learn for Phil, who has an element of sexism sort of in the original Groundhog Day. And I think he'd be able to be it'd, be, it'd be a nice moment for him to be like, oh, look, it was actually this young woman who was behind this all along. And he can give her that that spotlight in, on his station. And that could be a good moment for him to, to grow from where he was in Groundhog Day. Yeah, that's my only question. Yeah, my, my, I, I had that same question, so I'm glad Joe addressed it. I still don't see exactly how he fits, especially after the events of Groundhog Day in your movie. But... The thing that I really don't see, I mean, I don't see the fit of three things. Edgar Wright doing a horror body like The Fly and Inspector Gadget. So, Zach, you got to tell me on what the hell your movie is because I feel like it doesn't make any sense to me. I just use The Fly as an example of... A horror. It doesn't. Have, it's not going to be the tone of the fly. Obviously, that was just a straight up horror. We're going to have some comedy in there, obviously. But Edgar Wright, you know, he did Shaun of the Dead, which is a horror comedy. Now I, I was going to put uh, some of those guys into some background characters, but I didn't feel the need to delve into that a little bit too much. Um, so Edgar Wright, uh, because we do need that sense of, you know, yes, having like shit come out of your hands or out of your heart or out of your mouth or you can spray toothpaste like in the stupid movie. Um, did, did, did we lose him? Is he still there? There's going to be a second. He's um, But the sense of horror that Edgar Wright can bring, um, I think, would fit more into this style. Okay. All right. Well, um, you two kind of fight it out. Uh, Zach, what did you uh, not like about Tristan's pitch, and why is yours better? Jim Carrey as Claw. Uh, Claw in the cartoon show is this, like, evil, like, behind-the-scenes guy. You don't ever see him. If you're going to have Taika Waititi and Jim Carrey, I'm sure Jim Carrey's going to have this over-the-top manic performance, which Jim Carrey's very good at, but that's not the character. Now, in my movie, I know... I'm changing the film. 
I mean, we've seen Inspector Gadget movie. We've seen the show. Then they just recently do like a show on Netflix. Yeah. I yeah. have no idea. Probably. Um, so I want to take this property and do something a little different. Just I know it, not a little different, a lot different. We've seen Inspector Gadget at its heights with the 80s cartoon. We've seen it at its low point with Matthew Broderick and uh, French Stewart, I think, was in the other one. So trying something different and taking some of the same ideas, but still having that intimidating claw. Bill Hader can still be kind of goofy in his film. He can still be Bill Hader. Uh, and doing things like that, but having that horror element to add something to this franchise that has kind of you know dipped and curved a lot. I think would be something uh, different and people would be intrigued by. But Jim Carrey is Clyde. All right. Um, all right. So, yeah, okay, you're back. Tristan, uh, now uh, what, what's your defense on that? I'll say that you want to change the story entirely, so I don't think you can attack me for changing, like, one element of it. And I think... I did change it by making Claw sort of this actual antagonist rather than just like this shady organization. And I, but I think that's a interesting change. I think it gives them an actual antagonist to fight against. And I think Jim Carrey and Steve Carell could be really fun opposites to each other. You have Steve Carell playing it sort of straight as Inspector Gadget, but he's like in the original cartoon, he's sort of goofy. He doesn't really know what he's doing, but he's able to put up the show that he does know what he's doing. And I think Steve can pull that off. I think Jim Carrey can pull off this big villain that's like a nice foil to Steve Carell's uh, inspector. And to combat the critique of Bill Murray in the movie, I think that this can be a great return to his arc. I think he, at this age, he would be old, a little older. He'd be married to Rita. Maybe they'd be thinking about having kids and... He's maybe not totally sure to be ready for having kids or not. And then the reveal at the end of, oh, look, Penny was a mastermind the whole time is a, is a moment for him to realize, like, he come around a little bit more on to having kids. And I think that's an arc for him to have. Like, the first movie of Groundhog Day is about him accepting love and romance. And he's, he comes back and Inspector Gadget to learn to, you know, let himself care for kids and to maybe bring a kid into the world with Rita. And I think that's a, a nice growth to have him go along without having to backtrack any of his arc in the original movie. And I think that adds to this as well, because he, he be the news reporter who's along with Inspector Gadget. So you'd see him get interactions with Steve Carell and he'd be able at first he's sort of just joking around, not taking this super seriously, like Inspector Gadget, sort of like a, like a like a big figurehead that people know in society and pop culture and he thinks it's just sort of like a fluff piece human interest story but as he goes along that journalistic interest that was sort of lost in Groundhog Day kind of picks back up and he says oh maybe there's like a, an actual good story here it's not something to just be jaded and, and forgetful about like this could be something interesting and that could be something too to build through his arc so I think having that character come back adds to this movie and also adds to the character. So I think it's, I'm happy with that choice of the rule with that character. Okay. All right. I'm going to be honest. I'm pretty split. So I have an important question for, for both of you to answer your inspector gadget. Okay. Steve Carell and Bill Hader. Both of you compare the closest performance that they've done in their career to the tone and the character that they're giving in this movie. All right, so uh, Tristan, what what's like the closest thing Steve Carell has done to your Inspector Gadget? 
Magnaby sort of like gets smart, but a little more efficient. Like he was very proud in that movie. He was very uh, excited to do his job and very happy about what he was doing for a career. But I would make him a little bit more outwardly efficient at Inspector Gadget because there's that element in the original show that he doesn't really know what he's doing, but he's happy to be doing it. And Penny is sort of his brain behind the operation. So I think making him a little bit of a, a dork like he was in Get Smart, but very happy and excited that to be doing something like inspecting and solving crimes is something that would fit really well. Okay, so get smart. And then Zach, what what about Bill Hader as your inspector gadget? With Bill Hader, you can look up any certain amount of SNL stuff he's done and he's played over the top characters. He's played more serious characters, more more of the goofy. I'm thinking of uh, as far as the goofiness and the facial expressions, I'm thinking of when he's the host of Dateline and he's just sitting there, the guy's talking about a murder, he's just being over the top and oh okay. Um, he's done like a coach skit where he's just very vibrant with his body. He's moving around a lot, trying to pump his team up. So that would be where I would. Okay. All right, Joe, what are you, what are you, what are your thoughts? Uh, my whole thing with Tristan is like, I, I just don't, as soon as he said, I like Steve Carell, he's good on the office. You know, he's good uh, in movies and more dramatic work. But as soon as he said, Steve Carell as, Inspector Gadget, for some reason, I just wasn't on board. It reminded me too much of just like the Matthew Broderick original version. And then he brought in Jim Carrey. And then all I could think about was the incredible Burt Wonderstone with Steve Carell and Jim Carrey. And that movie was trash. And I just, I just don't know if like those two pairing up. And I think Jim Carrey as Claw and like Jim Carrey is kind of the opposite of what Claw was. I just don't know if I'm on board for that. And I know it's a big shakeup of kind of more what Inspector Gadget is with this more like horror comedy, but I feel like it's almost like, I don't want to say realistic, but in a sense of like, that's kind of what would happen. Like Zach said, if like spoons and other stuff started coming out, out of you, it would be scary. It would be terrifying. And I like it for his version of the movie. I like Bill Hader as Inspector Gadget. So I would go with Zach on this. All right. Yeah. I, I think, um, for me, it's tough because I, I think Tristan, your cast would have been better if you swapped Steve Carell and Jim Carrey. I think Steve Carell could play the better straight man as Claw, and Jim Carrey could be kind of the making facial expressions as he's saying "go go gadget" and things are popping out of him. I think you messed up there um, a little bit, and I don't really get how. Phil from Groundhog's Day fits into your movie. I know it's a famous character and he happens to be a news reporter, but the arc that he goes through in Groundhog Day, he doesn't need to go through another arc at all in your movie. Um, so I, I think if you were going to go with a different Bill, Bill Murray character, maybe it would have fit better. Maybe you just have like, even just a like fish out of the water, like Bob from what about Bob, like showing up or something like that, I think would be better. And you could have fit it into your story more. Um, I feel like you just kind of threw in that to, to make it. But Zach, I, I think with yours, it doesn't it doesn't feel the idea of that rule is to make one a horror movie. Yours doesn't actually feel like a horror movie. I know you say it's a horror comedy, but then you have Edgar Wright, who's never done anything horror. You have Bill Hader, who has been in horror movies. He was in It, but when I asked, you know, what's he kind of doing, you went with his over-the-top performances in SNL, I would have liked it better if you told me he was, like, playing the straight man more like he wasn't it. Um, but 
Overall, while I think the better director choice for Zach would have been Sam Raimi instead of Edgar Wright, I think that was a much better fit for the movie you pitched. I think uh, the movie I'd rather see and be more interested in is um, is Zach's movie because it feels so much more different than anything we've had before. And Tristan's just kind of feels like more of the same. And I don't need to see Steve Carell doing anything that's uh, comedic anymore. I, I think he is past that point. And I'm not usually a fan of him unless he's being literally Michael Scott. Um, so I don't need to see him really going back to like get smart or anything like that. I think it's like unwatchable when he does stuff like that. So I'm going to go with Zach on this one. Yeah, I would have been way more on board for Tristan's movie if it was like 2006, 2007, and you had Jim Carrey and Steve Carell. And did we lose Tristan? Uh, he got so mad that you voted for Zach. He just I mean, I would have if Tristan did that same exact pitch, but had Bill Hader instead of Steve Carell. I think he wins that. But Bill yeah. Hader to me is knock it out of the park, perfect choice for what I would want for Inspector Gadget. I was trying to think of who I'd cast, and I can't think of anyone better than Bill Hader for that role. Yeah, so I, I think that, that's, what, that's what really wanted for, for Zach there. So that makes it three to two. Um, Tristan, you got to bounce back. You got to try to end it early. You don't want to get to get to uh, three to three here. So what are you what are you more confident in out of your next uh, – Yeah, I'm going to have to disagree with that call on the last movie, but let's go ahead and move on here, I guess, to uh, Dora the Explorer. All right. So Dora and the Lost City of Gold came out in 2019. It got an 85% of Rotten Tomatoes, uh, which is way higher than and the only positive score of any of the movies that we're doing today. Um, it's directed by James Bobin. It stars Isabella Moner uh, and Michael Pena. Uh, Dora, a teenage explorer, leads her friends on an adventure to save her parents and solve the mystery behind a Lost City of Gold. Um, so that's what the uh, the plot of the movie is. It's obviously based on the children's show, and uh, it, it did pretty well, and people seem to like it. I've never seen it, but um, it was successful, so I'm interested to hear what you two uh, are, are doing with this, um, uh, what I hear is a good movie. So, Tr- uh, Tristan, who's who's starting? You or I'll go first. All right. So the rule I use for Dora the Explorer is to make it a horror movie. And my Dora the Explorer, the horror movie, is directed by Guillermo del Toro. My Dora is Isabella Gomez. She was in uh, One Day at a Time, a popular Netflix survival of a very popular Spanish-language TV show about a Mexican family immigrated to the United States. Uh, my Diego is played by Rico Rodriguez from Modern Family. Boots is voiced by Michael Pena. Uh, obviously from Ant-Man, and I didn't know this until I looked him up to do this pitch, but he went to my high school, apparently, which is really weird. (laughs) And their uncle is played by Pedro Pascal. So Dora and Diego Marquez are now in in their very early 20s. Uh, They're they're college students and taking the summer vacation to South America to visit their uncle, Pedro Pascal. His name is Christian, and he was the exploration enthusiasts who inspired and trained them when they were very young. So we get like a brief tie-in flashback at the opening where Pedro Pascal is sort of training young Dora and Diego. We get a little bit of an iconic, they're wearing the iconic clothes when they were younger and we get this element that he was very influential presence in their young life and very big reason that they're becoming explorers as adults. And Dora and Diego have promised their families to give up the dangers of exploring 
but the mysterious temple that their uncle has been searching for since they were kids has tempted the duo to take into one last adventure with their uncle and their trusted monkey boots. But the exploration quickly goes bad as they find the temple is haunted by ghosts of the ancient leaders of the past that the temples are built for. So the gang must work together to solve puzzles of the maze using knowledge they learn from seeing the ghosts and from seeing visions of the past and from studying the, the temples around them. You know, when the ghosts then they get these sort of flashes of, of the South American history and sort of the founding of, of Spanish language civilization in, in, in the continent and up into Mexico, you get sort of like this growing element of history that is sort of forgotten in this ancient history. And of course the gang is older now, a little bit older, so we can go a little bit darker. Uh, Del Toro can do a little bit dark, but not ultra super dark, you know, something that is a little bit, a little bit lighter, sort of like a pan's labyrinth in tone that is definitely dark, but has that sort of fairy tale esque element that makes it a little bit more fun. Uh, so you can name for a little bit of an older audience, people who maybe caught the tail end of the original series and are now sort of like wanting to see a, a little bit more of a mature, fun take on Dora rather than just like a cheesy thing that's similar to the show. And the cats are also comedic and pretty charming actors. So I think they can bring the sort of enthusiasm and optimism of the original characters that can stand as like this light against the horrifying backdrop of these ghosts in these super dark tombs and, and mazes and, and, and booby traps and things like that. I think Del Toro was a great pick to bring that to life. Uh, he's known for horror, but he's also done Troll Hunters on Netflix, which was sort of a more mature and interesting animated show that was very well received and able to appeal to both adults and kids. So I could go for a bit of a similar audience as Troll Hunters that is horror, and definitely a horror movie, but aims a little bit more towards a, a, a wider audience. I think Del Toro can bring that charm together of adult horror versus sort of kids' characters and collide that really well in the store of the Explorer horror movie. And that's my pitch. All right. Very interesting pitch. Zach, what do you got for me? Uh, Dora in the Lost City of Gold. My director will be James Gunn. Dora will be, I, I, she's in Runaways, and I'm going to mispronounce her name, and I feel really bad. Aurelia Barrer, Barrer uh, Boots. I also picked Michael Pena. That was, that was a good choice. Swiper, we're going to go with John DiMaggio, because I want a voice actor. I don't just want a famous voice. Uh, Pedro Pascal will kind of play this evil uh, explorer. And I picked Bill Murray for this one. And we're going to go with Frank Cross from Stooge. Now, when I bring in James Gunn, I want what he wanted to do with Scooby-Doo. We're going to have Dora be older. She's, she's kind of cynical. She wants to retire from exploring. Frank Cross comes to her, though, with one more mission that he wants because he wants one last big hit for IBC television before he retires that's where he wants his legacy to go one more big hit so what he wants from her is an exploration to this lost city of gold um she can't pass up on the opportunity because she's heard about this city from her parents so she goes on her adventures encountering animals uh, obstacles people that want to help her people that don't want to help her but they're not um evil she she we're going to hear sarcastic comments like, Dora, just get out your map. Or, and she's going to make some one-off cope like, why the hell would I have a map to something that no one knows exists? Um, Pedro Pascal is going to come in. He's going to be this. He overhears what she's trying to do. And knowing how good Dora is at her job, he's going to try and sabotage uh, and follow her to this city. But instead of just 
getting eyes on this gold for a television show. He's going to try and steal it. Uh, Dora, she's having this tough time figuring it out. She's having, she can't do what she needs to do to find this city. But eventually she comes across this clue. She finds the city. And unbeknownst to her, Del Toro is following her. The two meet up. Uh, Dora sets a trap for him. And according more of an adult uh, way, Del Toro is stopped from stealing the treasures, but he is stuck in this city for the rest of his life. So he can't leave. Um, she brings back. Frank Cross gets what he wants. He want, he gets this amazing television show, a reality thing. And Dora gets kind of this reinvigorated joy for exploring. Not Dora, uh, Pedro Pascal, excuse me. All right. Um, very interesting pitches for a Dora movie. Not really either one. I feel like kids are rushing out to see. Um, Joe, uh, what, what are your what are your thoughts and questions for them? Uh, yeah, I guess my question for, I mean, I guess Tristan, if the rule was like make it a horror movie, I guess when we uh, set out for that rule is make it like a dark, like Mike Flanagan, make it like a Conjuring, make it like make this a scary movie, and your movie just sounds like more like a labyrinth or like. If you're like four, it might be a little like scary because you said you're going to go for like kind of that box troll or was it box trolls? Go for that box troll type tone. So I guess defend how yours is more of like a horror movie and not just like, eh, that's kind of, if you're like a little kid, it might have scary moments. I think Del Toro is how that happens. I think you could pull off the gothic, very dark, very shadowy tombs and the, make the ghosts really terrifying. And I want to go for the ghosts to be terrifying. Like, I'm not super aiming for the kid market here. I'm aiming for like teenagers and young adults, people who knew the show at the tail end of it, but aren't like actively watching Dora right now. And I think that's the audience to go for here is people who want to see a, a scarier take on Dora. Like what would Dora be like if the character we know faced off this genuinely scary ghost? And I think you could, that would still be very scary. I think Del Toro can bring out the horror in that really well. And I think the ghosts can be definitely terrifying depending on how you design them. And Del Toro is great with making things look terrifying. And I think that would be something you can do really well. You look at Pan's Labyrinth, he made stuff look really scary in that stuff that could be appealing to kids, but, is all, but isn't because it's scary. And it's like a twisted fairy tale. So I think that would be what, how you make it a horror movie. You put a great horror director in the lead of it, and he could turn anything into a great horror movie. Especially because he has the attachment to the, to the ethnicity. And I think you could be able to bring in elements of the history down in and make it interesting and scary at the same time. All right, so that my counter question to you there is, well, you have a situation where, you know, a six, seven-year-old little girl who loves Dora sees the trailer for a Dora movie and asks her mom to take her to the Dora movie. The movie's not made for her, so now you have a, I know you said you make your movie for like the OG fans of Dora, but you still have little kids today who are fans of Dora who now can't watch your Dora movie. Well, little kids went and saw Deadpool. It doesn't make Deadpool a bad movie just because parents didn't pay attention to the marketing. You know, you make the trailer very obviously a horror movie and very obviously aiming for an older PG-13 audience. And I think if a mom is willing to grab their six-year-old kid and go see a trailer, go see a horror movie that they didn't even bother looking up the trailer for, I think that's on the parents. It's not on the movie. All right. And uh, my question for 
Zach, is yeah, right. with Frank Cross in your movie, how do you explain that the world of Scrooge takes place in a world with like a talking fox and a talking monkey? Well, that's how it is. I mean, it's this super weird world because a lot of screw you have the you have the Grim Reaper, you have these supernatural ghosts, and then uh, with the end of my movie, when Pascal gets stuck in his um, stuck in the the city of the Golden City, it's this supernatural force. Yeah. All right, and then my I guess a additional question is like, what do uh, Swiper and Boots look like? Do they look live action? Or are they like kind of like animated in a way like how they animal how the Pokemon looked in Detective Pikachu? Like, what do they look like? I hadn't thought about that, but I I would do kind of that Pokemon uh, Detective Pikachu look. All right. We're realistic, but they're still kind of cute. All right. You, you, you want a Bulbasaur? Come on. No, I'm, I'm I've always been a Charmander guy. That's all the questions I had. That's all the questions I had. All right. Um, I mean, you kind of addressed it. I, I feel like neither of these movies are really for Dora fans. Um, that's what's kind of hindering me um, a little bit about both. So I'd say uh, there's not really any specific question I have. I'm not really leaning one way or the other. It'll all come down to kind of the arguments. So I want to see who can kind of take the other person's movie down the best. And I want to see, uh, Zach, you start with that. Okay. Did you freeze? So you're going more with the gothic. With the uh, Del... this Spanish history scary or are you going to do or this natural thing or what, uh, again what am I just missing when I'm trying to just get my pitch together uh, I didn't hear a ton of the question but I think you were talking about how are you going to make this scary and what is Del Toro going to bring into it in Spanish history and I think that no, my question, I guess. yeah go ahead uh, it was more like what what's going to be scary is it, or is it that just these ancient things are scary or is there like a supernatural element or? Yeah, there's a supernatural element. There are definitely ghosts. And I think you have them as ghosts of like these big leaders of, of the South America's past. And I think that could bring in the element of like, they were these hierarchies of, of old and they were kind of abusive leaders. And now they're, now they're ghosts that are hunting these innocent people and terrifying them and making them solve these crazy puzzles to escape. And there, there's threats of death because these puzzles are not, like jokes, these are things that can kill them. These are spikes, these are gigantic things that could actually kill these characters that we know. So I think that would be something that Del Toro brings into it and making it scary is these ghosts are terrifying. Okay. Uh, you're, and again, I must have just missed it because I keep phasing in and out. But how old was your Dora going to be in this? Uh, like I said, they're they're in their like early 20s, like they're, they're late college students. Similar, similar to me. Okay. Yeah. Okay. My my attack on yours is that it doesn't feel all that different from the movie we already have. Like it's meta and it's self-referential and and it's just like a door adventure. You know, it doesn't feel like it does anything super unique with the with the property. And I think if anything, it's a little bit cynical with like this media conglomerate coming in to turn Dora into like a ratings show. And I think that sort of cynic cynicality of 
of doesn't really fit in your version of Dora, something that's sort of trying to be this fun adventure. And I think mine works a little bit more because the characters are still their optimistic selves that we know, and they're up against this dangerous, horrifying threat. And I think that's what makes this core to the, to the, to the people who watched Dora originally, people who are around our age, maybe a little bit younger teenagers and in, in 20-somethings, people who want to see a more serious take on what they know you see that a lot. People love when people when movies do that. Like that Power Ranger short went around that was like, oh, it's dark and gritty Power Rangers. And people were like, oh, that's badass. And I think you you turn Dora into this horror adventure. And I think that could be really, really popular. I think you you bring that, you bring the ghosts, you make that very scary, but you still have the optimistic side of these characters that's shining through. Well, the re- I'm trying to, again, word this. The cynical side comes in from that Dora has done this before, sort of like on both of our Scooby-Doo pitches. Um, it's just going through the motions. She does this thing. Uh, she's done it a hundred times. She's over it. Sort of like how we might, as we gotten older, we're like, all right, this Dora thing's kind of dumb. Like, click on the click on the tree on where I should go. It's something new with the character. Now, unlike the movie, she's not going to high school. I did read a plot synopsis of that movie, because I'm not going to watch a Dora the Explorer movie. I'm sorry. She's not going to go to high school. I don't have Diego in my movie. Um, her family's really not going to be in it. It's just going to be her, Boots, uh, Swiper. And Swiper, I don't even have necessarily as a bad guy. He just keeps trying to take things, and she's just like, dude. Um... Come on. All right. Here's my thing. I I think, uh, I think I have a judgment call here. Um, Joe, what, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, I'm a little torn. Like I think as time went on, I learned more of like how uh, Tristan's a horror movie. Uh, But I think overall, I think his is also slightly more, I think Zach's is slightly more family friendly. And I think at the end of the day, like I understand he made the Deadpool point, but what just it's because it's hard to be consistent as a judge. But I also look at it as like if this movie were to be made, uh, especially with Dora as an active franchise, like they're going to want to make it so the whole family can see it. So fans like little kids that are watching Dora right now could go see this movie. I don't know if uh, we really need a like straight horror Dora movie. And also, like, his use of the role of uh, Bill Murray's character from Scrooge sends her out as, like, his one last thing to, like, get big ratings. And so I think I'm going to have to go with Zach's. All right. Well, here's here's what I'm going to do here. Because I don't think either of these pitches are very good for a Dora movie because of a couple reasons. Zach said it in his in – his, pitching at the end. He said, I'm not going to go see a Dora movie, you know, just like offhand comment, but he's right. We're not going to go see a Dora movie. I don't care if it's a horror movie. I don't care if it has Bill Murray in it. I'm not going to see a Dora the Explorer movie. I didn't grow up with it, but same thing too of, I grew up watching the Rugrats, but if they said they were making a live action Rugrats movie, that's a horror movie. I'd be like, that sounds fucking stupid. Why on (laughs) earth would you do that? Just because I grew up with something doesn't mean that now I need to see that in an adult version. I'd rather just go see the Rugrats movie like with the same tone and style as the original one. So I don't think either of those points are very good for you guys. 
And I honestly, I don't want both pitches, so I don't want to make the final ruling based on this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to award two points to the winner of our last pitch. So I'm not going to reward you the point on Dora, but the next one will result in the win. And either Tristan's going to take it 5-2 and get a repeater rule, or Zach is going to narrowly win 4-3. But it all comes down to our last pitch because both of these ones were not worth the victory to me. So we're going to the A-team, I believe, is our last movie, and that's going to be the one that decides the victory. Can I just say, when I said I wouldn't see a Dora movie, I wouldn't see a Dora movie like that is just... We did have we one live comment, though, just Dora. from someone you're familiar with. Yeah. The other, the other thing I didn't mention with Zach when I was saying that was, I mean, kids kids don't need to see a Guillermo del Toro movie. One, Guillermo del Toro, I know he makes some scary creatures, but he's not a horror movie director. And then for Zach, um, no no kid who watched Dora knows who the fuck Frank from Scrooge is. So I don't think that character fits into, fits into Dora particularly well either. And again, it's just like the Phil Connors thing. He already learned all of his lessons and stuff. I don't see how he fits in the narrative that that you that you sold. Um, so I want it to come down to the A team because that's a movie that I've seen. It's a show that I've watched, and I feel like it's a pitch that both of you are going to be more passionate about because none of us have seen or probably even watched Dora. So I don't want to. And we both, feel like same, we both have the same yeah. idea. Both no, have I, I, like say, I forgot to track it, but we definitely do. I feel like if I if I chose Zach for that, it would only be to make it come down to the A team, and if I chose Tristan, it would it would kind of ruin the fun of having the last movie. So this is the way I'm going to do it. We're going to say that the A team is worth two points. So the A team came out in 2010. It got a 48 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, I think it's a perfectly fun cable movie to throw on anytime, and it's entertaining. It's directed by Joe Carnahan. It stars Liam Neeson, Bradley Cooper. Charlton Copley and Quentin Rampage Jackson. Um, it's about a group of Iraq war veterans look to clear their name with the U.S. military who suspect the four men of committing a crime for which they were framed. So that's what the uh, the original movie is about. A little different than the show, but let's hear. Uh, Before um, we start, since, I, have, uh, I have two things. Yes. Two things. So first we have a live comment. Uh, Spinner58 agrees with your ruling. Says, good call, right. Johnny. Love to see you. And then the other thing is there's a weird statistical thing right now. With your whole not giving a point on this one, uh, no rule will win twice tonight. Every rule is one and one. Love to see it. Yeah, that we were split on the rules here. I, I think uh, that shows a good sign of uh, pitching with different things. It's not like one rule ran away with it. So I like that. Yeah. Um, all right. So the A-team, who's who's starting? You know what? I'm going to make the call. Uh uh, Tristan started with Last City of Dora or whatever the fuck it's called. So, Zach, I want your pitch first on the 18. Okay, 18. We're going to go with director Chad Stahensky. Or, the director from uh, John. Sorry, my computer's driving out again. My screen's going in and out. Give me one second. Come on. Okay, here we go. Um, Andy Circus is going to play Hannibal. Every time I think of Hannibal, I think of Cigar and a Mouth Beard. And um, Ian McGregor will play Peck. John Boyega will play B.A. You know, seems a little racist. And then Oscar Isaac is my Murdoch. Mark Hamill will be my main villain. Uh, 
Adam Driver is my military man trying to catch these wanted criminals. He's not a bad guy, but he's just after these these uh, criminals. Laura, uh, Laura Dern is Driver's superior, demanding he catch them. Um, Donald Gleason uh, is also a part of this military. But also throughout the film, we learn that Donald Gleason works for Mark Hamill. We're going to see the opening classic opening narration. Uh, these men are wanted criminals. Um, and then some basic exposition. So we kind of get to know who these characters are. You know, Murdoch's kind of uh, a little bit nutty, obviously. Uh, BA's kind of a badass, Beck's really smart, and Circus is going to be our leader. Um, the group's going to sit over a fire. We're going to have an opening action sequence as Adam Driver's crew surrounds them. They're going to get away through a massive group of explosions, personal battles, a little bit of gunfighting. Um, and then we're going to cut back to Mark Hamill, who is sitting there watching this because we see that he has a man on the inside of Adam Driver's team. Um, Driver then gets word of a plan to blow up the city of Houston, Texas. Laura Dern obviously tells the scene, hey, get, get going, catch these guys. We go behind the scenes of Hamill as he's setting up his plan to frame the A-team and sets to work while the two sides, Dern, Lord Dern and Adam Driver, they play cat and mouse with the A-team. Eventually, we get that, gather that uh, the two sides kind of catch on that neither one of them are indeed the bad guys in this part of the story. They catch on that it is Mark Hamill. So through a classic thing of explosions, gunfights, the team using their different skills to get their way out of this massive disaster. They come together to take down Mark Hamill's character, and then their names are cleared. All right. Um, quick question, just because you were, were breaking up a little. Who is your director? Chad Stahelski, uh, John Wick. Okay, so John Wick director. And then um, I got Andy Serkis and John Boyega, but who is Murdoch and who is Face? Uh, Boyega and Oscar Isaac. Wait, no, Boyega is BA, right? Yeah. Who's Murdoch? Oh, Oscar Isaac, sorry. Oscar Isaac, and then who's Face? Ian uh, McGregor. Ian McGregor, yes. Okay, perfect. All I needed to know. I had him down. This one, this one I feel like is going to come down big time to casting, so I want to make sure I have all those uh, – uh, written down. Um, all right, interesting pitch though. I like it. And uh, Tristan, what do you got? All right, like we've hinted at already, my A team is all Star Wars actors. It feels like a great pick for this. You have a lot of iconic characters that can match up with some iconic actors. And my story is of the A team, an elite group of military vets who are high, who are paid to go on rogue missions to the highest bidder. Uh, they are military vets who were accused of who are who are. Uh, kicked out of the military for something they didn't actually do. So I got people from various different wars uh, that are, have all experienced sort of like the same thing. Uh, and they're hired by the U.S. government to secretly rescue the president after he is captured by a domestic terror group that believes they can expose a secret conspiracy of global elites that includes the U.S. president. So the A-team is tasked with rescuing the president without alerting the public. In exchange for that, they'll have their records expunged and they'll finally be able to live the, uh, the life they've always dreamed of. My Hannibal, he's a leader of the team. He's sort of uh, gritty and gruff. He's an older war vet. He's a leader, but he's also sort of a tactician. Uh, he's played by Harrison Ford. 
my face is uh, the most cunning of the group. She's often tasked with talking and flirting her way behind enemy lines, sort of getting in the in in the heads of the enemy and getting information that they otherwise wouldn't have given. She's suave and smooth, but not afraid of the occasional fist fight. And she's played by Natalie Portman. My VA, I played Icon Mr. T in the original series. He's the big muscle. He's the arm specialist. He's he's loud. He want, he's always willing to fight. He's very flashy. Uh, he's loud and battle hungry. And he's played by Samuel L. Jackson. My Murdoch, he's howling mad. He's a pilot. He's an expert of machinery, but he's also kind of crazy and unpredictable. Uh, he's played by Ewan McGregor, who I think could play a really good sort of unhinged but talented pilot. And it would give him a lot of leeway to be sort of fun and with the with the madness of it but also being skilled and talented with what he's doing and my enemies are the awakening like i said they're a homegrown terror group and they're convinced that the u.s uh president is part of a secret ring of cr criminal elites and they're hoping to use the president to expose the truth and the leader is sort of an angry sporadic man he's also a war vet he's ready to shoot anybody even an ally who gets in his way he's played by mark hamill other tech head hacker, who's a dark web browsing incel type, who's very fast talking and direct. He's played by Adam Driver. We have a silent and grim soldier who fights for the awakening, played by Hayden Christensen. And we have a very trained muscular fighter who's sort of a big muscle of the group of the awakening. He's played by Gwendolyn Christie. And the president is played by Jimmy Smits. And the A-team has a helicopter AI voiced by James Earl Jones. So the original show is is sort of is very comedic, it's all, and I wanted to capture that, but also capture sort of the big action set, sort of of it. So this is a, a big action. Uh, the Travis Knight has experience in action, but he also has experience in bringing heart to it. He, Bumblebee was had comedy and had heart in the characters, uh, and we have typical action movie scenes. I mean, there's big fights. We have Natalie Portman having to sort of seduce men to get information behind the scenes. I think that would be something she's really good at. She's obviously very attractive, but I think she could play that sort of, you, you see her and underestimate her, and then in reality, she's there to get you. And in the last, we have Hamill and Ford, who are obviously the big icons of Star Wars that are in this, and they're sort of the opposing forces who are leading the opposite teams. So they are on each other's tails throughout the whole movie. They're always kind of slightly missing each other. One's always, get, uh, Hamill's always getting aware before Ford can get in the room. But they do have a final confrontation at the end of the movie where they have this sort of last conversation that could be a nice moment for Star Wars fans who want to see older Hamill and older Ford get this conversation scene together. They never got one together in the sequel trilogy, so this could be sort of like a big goodbye to them as, as a duo. And in the final confrontation, we get a cool reference because Hannibal shoots first, and he leaves Hamill's character there to sort of bleed out and, and, and die, and they rescue the president and, and sort of save the day. And that's my pitch of the A-team. All right. All right, Joe, uh, any questions for these two? Uh, yeah, I guess, like, I, I get Zach's. I understand Zach's. My question is more for uh, Kristen. It's like, like, I think one of my big problems with, like, studios take a show and turn it into a movie is they go bigger and they go, like, more advanced and they go beyond, like, what the show is. And the A-Team was always on the run from the government. Uh, they were, like, 
trying to hide from the government. They were helping like these small people in these small towns. So I want you to defend having them work for the government, saving the president. I think like, I know you said to get the record expunged, but they would never even put themselves in a situation where the government could approach them to save the president. I think that's sort of the twist here is like in the opening scene, you'd see them doing that classic sort of save the small town adventure and they're captured and the government kind of gives them like, okay, look, you can go to prison or you can work for us and we'll clear your records and you can get what you wanted this whole time. You can get your new lives. So you won't have to do this sort of mercenary work anymore. So they're given that ultimatum at the beginning of the movie and they ultimately choose to against some of their own judgment is work for the government and, and do that rescuing of the president to ultimately get the goal they've wanted from the beginning. Okay. okay. That's something close um, to and, and, uh, and Tristan, well, who was your director? I missed Travis that. Knight. Okay. All right. Um, I don't really have many questions. I think um, both your pitches, I understand them. I really don't have any, any problems with, with either pitch. It's an A-team movie. I'm not too worried about the plot. I think this fight needs to come down to defending and taking down the other person's casting choices, especially for the A-team um, themselves. So, uh, Tristan, why is your A-team, the actors that you chose for your people, better than the ones Zach did? Because mine are the big iconic Star Wars actors, or if you were seeing like this premise, oh, it's like a team movie, but it's going to be all Star Wars people. I think you want to see Harrison Ford. You want to see people who are from across all the trilogies, but are also like the people we know. No one's going to see uh, uh, see that premise like, oh, we're using all Star Wars actors and be like, oh boy, I hope Andy Serkis and Laura Dern are like main characters because those were like not anyone's favorite characters from Star Wars or not Snoke and Haldo. Like, those, if anything, those were like the worst characters in the entire sequel trilogy, so no one's going to be jumping up and down to see them like in this Star Wars premised movie. And I think people want to see Harrison Ford and Mark Hamill in, in this in together. And I think that's what people wanted more than anything that they didn't get from the sequel trilogy was seeing that iconic reunited duo. And unfortunately, Carrie Fisher obviously can't be in this, but you want to see at least Harrison Ford and Mark Hamill. They're the icons of Star Wars and not having them, they need to be the front and center because you, you're seeing this because you want to see Star Wars cast in this movie, and I think having those icons in the lead is is a is a much better choice than having Andy Serkis, who's not even attached to Star Wars. Most of the minds of the fandom, no one thinks of Andy Serkis and they think of Star Wars. They think of Lord of the Rings. They think of Planet of the Apes. They don't think of Star Wars. So I guess what the main debate is: Are we casting a movie with Star Wars actors, or are we casting a movie? so that we can satisfy Star Wars fans. You're just casting a movie with Star Wars actors. I don't give a shit about Star yeah, Wars fans. Because yeah, I that's kind of my movie at. based on like what I see fit. Yeah, no, Andy Serkis and Star Wars, you know, no one thinks about him, but I would be a good Hannibal, kind of an older man, a little wiser. Ian McGregor as Peck or Face, I guess I don't know why I have Peck written down. Um, I think Peck's his real last name, right? It is. It is. It is. So, I just I know the nickname's Face, but I wrote Peck. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Boyega um, can play this meaner, tougher guy. It's not a side maybe we've seen of him before. And then Oscar Isaac as Murdoch. 
we've seen some of the Star Wars films him kind of go a little nutty, be a little crazy. He has to expound on that, obviously. But we're here to cast our own movie with Star Wars actors. We're not here to satiate Star Wars fans who want to see Mark Hamill and Harrison Ford share a screen or see Hayden Christensen come back to to any movie. Um, that's where I just cast it based on fit, not what I would want to see. I cast mine based on a movie that I think people would actually want to see, that people would go out to the theater and see, that people might actually make. You know, and no one's going to bank a movie on Andy Serkis as a lead. You know, he's not really a, a live-action actor. He's a right in live-action, but he's he's a CGI performance capture actor. That's what he's great at, and I don't think I'd be super hyped to see an Andy Serkis-led live-action movie. I made a movie that people want to see, that I would want to see, that uses the Star Wars actors well. It doesn't just say, oh, they might fit with this role. They kind of look like him. I, I, I said, okay, if this was actually being made, where would they cast these people? What would they do to pay tribute to the A-team, but also to pay tribute to Star Wars? And I think I, I found that middle ground much more than you did. Well, in, in 2010, when they made this movie, what sells the movie is the A-team, not the Star Wars actors. Oh, sure, but you're making in a Star Wars movie now. In 2010, Liam Neeson and Bradley Cooper aren't seen as these big action stars anymore. I know Liam Neeson has been taken, but he's been doing a bunch of other stuff. Charlito Copley, I don't think anyone's seeing a movie to see him. Quentin Jackson is a UFC fighter, so you're bringing that in, so good for that. But no one's going to see a film because like, oh, Quentin Jackson, that's intriguing. And I think I capture those characters from the A-Team well, too. I think Harrison Ford is sort of the gritty leader. He fits perfectly. I think Ewan McGregor is sort of this off-his-rocker off pilot. That's perfect. Ewan McGregor can play crazy really well, and he can play skilled really well. So I think he can play both of those pretty well. I think Natalie Portman is like a seductress, flirtatious person who's working behind the scenes, who's, who's manipulating people, who's sneaking your way into things because she's underestimated but ultimately is powerful. I think that's a perfect fit for her. And I think, of course, Samuel L. Jackson as that character would be really fun and really iconic because Mr. T gives that, gives it that like larger than life sort of feel in the original show. And I think if anybody is larger than life, it's Samuel L. Jackson. He's incredibly fun. He's incredibly high energy. So I think, like, sure, people are seeing this for the A-team, and I think that they're seeing great actors play these roles really well. And I think they're seeing actors they'd be excited to see in these roles, not just actors that kind of look the part, actors that would put great performances in actors that would be really fun to see in the roles and actors that would be fun to see together. Uh, hang on one second, because I want to bring it back to Sam Jackson. Again, I don't, I remember the 2010 movie, but isn't like his character supposed to be this big badass thing that Sam Jackson in 1990, you know, before that was, and he still has this presence about him. But in a lot of his movies, he's not doing these big action set pieces. He's doing, he's the mastermind behind anything. If you look at the Avengers, um, he'll do something from time to time. But isn't that his role supposed to be this big uh, character that has this presence, this intimidating presence, uh, not only uh, with his mouth, because Samuel Jackson certainly with his, his voice has this presence, but with his look. I think he can pull that off. I mean, he was in that assassin movie. He was very threatening in that. He was he was in Star Wars. He was kind of threatening in that. You know, he stood face-to-face -face against the Emperor in Star Wars. And I think that 
Samuel Jackson can definitely be intimidating. Sure, he bulked up a little bit, but Samuel Jackson in general can be very scary. And I think Samuel Jackson playing that kind of intimidating, big, tough guy would be would be something that would fit him perfectly. I don't think that he's like some scrawny imbecile. He's very he's very tough, and he still is. Like your your characters seem to be all over the place in range of age. If they're all supposed to be this group together that was framed together uh, in the same war, same same moment, the ages are all over the place. I yeah, didn't I have them be framed in the same moment. I had them all be different people from different wars who were falsely discharged at different times and sort of came together through that shared experience. You did mention that. I apologize. I'm on such a tangent. I forgot. My, my apologies on that, Tristan. That's not good. But yeah, I think that actually is kind of interesting is you have this dynamic range of actors. And I think when you're using the cast of Star Wars, you, you have such a wide array, like decades apart of these movies. And I think that getting the most of that rule is being able to take somebody from the prequels and somebody from the sequels and somebody from the original trilogy and have them all be sort of like on this shared team together. So I think it, it, it's fine to make them different ages and different different groups like that. Okay, I, I, I don't have anything else. We've gone on for eight minutes about this. Yeah, we've, we've uh, I, I think I listened to too. This is an important fight. Um, yeah, Joe, uh, what are what are your what are your thoughts after hearing our competitors fight? Yeah, out? so my whole thing with my whole thing with like oh, we want like the important people from Star Wars or like the big things. Like my whole thing was like I went through like a couple days ago and been like, okay, what movies and what rules would I have done, and what the rule and movie I would have paired up with Star Wars as I would have done uh, Dukes of Hazard, and my Bo and Luke were Adam Driver and Alden Ehrenreich. So like, I don't really care if they're like the top prominent people in Star Wars. So I'm not really worried about that. I'm more worried about the fit for this movie. And then going based on kind of the rules Johnny set up for this one, if he wants, he's more focused on the cast. Even though I still have problems with Tristan's plot, um, it doesn't really feel like an 18 movie that much. But if I'm just gonna go based on the cast, I'm just going top to bottom, uh, as Hannibal, I'm gonna get. I, I like Andy Serkis as Hannibal, but I'm gonna give the edge of like Harrison Ford just a little bit more. And then for face, you got Natalie Portman and Ewan McGregor, and especially in the Travis Knight movie, I don't know if I see Natalie Portman as this kind of fighter, charmer kind of character in this movie. I feel like it's not really where she is in her career. It's nothing she would really do. I don't know if I could see her like fighting some like some military person when she weighs like, a, you know, a buck 10. I, if, if I wanted to go with a female face, you know, switch the gender up, I'd probably like skirt the rules a little bit and say, Hey, it's a star Wars actor. And maybe go with like Gina Carano as my face. But I think Ewan McGregor fits that role really well. So I'm going to go Ewan McGregor. And then far as B.A., Barack is taking over from Mr. T. This one is super easy for me. Like, yeah, Samuel L. Jackson was in the Hitman's Bodyguard, but there's a scene where he, you know, buys flowers for his wife, and he's like, it's not even an action scene, and he's just, like, hobbling across the road because he can't even run anymore because he's 70 years old. You know, there's a scene where he's de-aged in Captain Marvel, and he, you, you can tell just from, like, getting out of a chair, he's 70 years old. And so while he is in action movies, he's not really the one fighting anymore. He's an old man, and so to me, John Boyega is the better, better pick for BA. And then, as far as Murdoch goes, you had Oscar Isaac and Ewan McGregor, and it's hard because this one, I'm, 
this is the one that's definitely the closest for me because I can see both of them doing it rather well. But I think I'd have to give the edge to Oscar Isaac as my BA, or not my BA, as my uh, Howling Mad Murdoch. And so I think that would give Zach the edge as far as the cast goes, because I think they basically both had Mark Hamill as their main villain, so it's kind of a tie. Because Mark Hamill as a villain in cartoons is a main thing I want to see in live action. So. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what okay. I mean. I guess based on the rules you set up, I'd give the edge to Zach, and I also like his plot a lot more, so... So I feel like his plot is an A-team plot, where I don't know if Tristan's plot is really the plot of an A-team story. I, I think the plot is not very important for an A-team movie. I, I think as long as it's an action movie, you know, with the with the characters, you're going to see it for the characters. I don't remember one. I've seen the, the 2010 A-team movie probably 10 times, and I couldn't tell you anything about that plot. Like, I don't remember anything else about it, but I remember liking the characters in it. So... I think that's what's going to be the most memorable thing. So that's what I really wanted to uh, to focus on here. And uh, I don't think either of you nailed the casting. I think both of you could have moved things around. I think um, in a perfect world, this would be my casting for it. Hannibal, I think, is Sam Jackson. I mean, older guy, still, um, you know, super uh, charismatic and stuff. I think he makes uh, the best leader. Um, I agree with Joe. He's not really like the BA type, like fighting guy. Um, I think he's more of a, a, a Hannibal. I think face, the perfect face would have been Oscar Isaac. Um, I think uh, Murdoch, the perfect Murdoch is either Ewan McGregor or Andy Serkis. I think Andy Serkis would be a really good Murdoch and be kind of the crazy guy. I don't see him as like the older charismatic guy. I want to see him be Murdoch and be closer to like, him as Claw in the Black Panther movies. And my BA, I would have went like Lapita Nyong'o. I would have went a different direction with it and, and made someone who can still kick ass. Mainly because BA, yeah, it was Mr. T and it was um, a UFC fighter. But BA's main job in like the old show, yeah, he would get in the fights because it was Mr. T, but he's the explosives guy. So actually, I think Sam Jackson can still do that. He can be the explosive expert and have the personality his personality better fits BA than John Boyega. Literally, John Boyega in that role is just like, oh, they took the one like young black guy, you know. And, and I get there's not many options for that, but I John Boyega hasn't really proven he can do fight scenes. So at least if I'm going with someone personality wise, I think um, Sam Jackson fits BA's personality better. Um, while it wasn't what I would go with um, for some of the casting, I think Harrison Ford, while I don't know. I think Hannibal needs to be super charismatic and I don't think Harrison Ford, he's better like as like the old grumpy guy now. Um, but I like the use of Natalie Portman as, as face. I like that change up. I don't see Ewan McGregor playing that. I think he's better suited for a guy like Murdoch because he's really good at playing like the crazy guy. I, I thought he was easily the best part of that birds of prey movie that just came out. And I want to see him basically doing that as Murdoch. So I think it comes down to that, and and honestly, director-wise, if I'm going to see an 18 movie, it's not going to be something that blows me away. I want the tone of a Travis Knight movie, not a John Wick movie, and I want to separate it completely from Star Wars fandom, but any the thing that Star Wars missed out on was having Harrison Ford and Mark Hamill on the screen at the same time. So if I can go see a movie that's going to actually do that, I'm going to go see it, and I think that... Uh, 
means that Tristan is our champion today. Uh, oh, he boy. wins, finally getting uh, a victory after a hard-fought battle where, man, probably three or four of those fights I could have gone either way on. That, that was tough. I think only there was like one one of you had like a decisive win on, on uh, two different points. Everything else I could have gone one way or the other. Um, but I, I really like that that fight. So congrats, Tristan. How, how do you feel after getting that, that uh, elephant off your back? That was an amazing moment. I'm so glad that I won. Uh, it was definitely a toss-up at that A-team. Like, it all came out of the casting, like you said, and he yeah. had some definitely hit the nail with some casting. And I'll, I'll admit that some of mine weren't great. Like, you guys brought up some good counter casting, and I think I'm just happy with my casting there, so I'm glad that it won. I would have been pretty mad if I didn't win that for the casting. But, God, what a relief. I thought that would never come. And I thought I would eat this chip, and I was like, oh, God, I'm going to look like an idiot on camera. I'm going to be screaming and boiling my mouth off. And- he was up 3-1 and then loses. I, I think Tristan might have <laughs> lost it. So, no, I I, uh, I think that was a good uh, a good fight, hard fought. Zach, how do you feel after after uh, this fight? Uh, you know, I lost, but Tristan had some, some really good ideas. I didn't know – He's 0 3, but that was those were some the uh I really like the Del Toro Dora and his Nope. He first commenting Tristan. Tristan wins finally. But uh, no, congrats, Tristan. That was, that was fun. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, it was really fun. You know your shit. Way closer than that. I thought it was going to be closer. Okay, okay. We are all over the place. What is happening? All right, I think it was Zach. I muted Zach, so. Yeah, that was like uh, maybe if I had water for a second. There we go. Um, anyway, so, yeah, this was a good, good fight. It was tough. It's tough not to keep it in mind of, hey, Tristan hasn't won. Like, maybe I should, like, lean towards him. But, like, as a judge, you can't do that. you got to just be like, all right, well, who would I choose if I was in their shoes? Like, who do I feel like fought harder or made a better pitch? And it it was really close on a couple of them. I think Zach's going to get even better the more he goes on. I think, Tristan, you just having that experience helped you today because I think that was the reason – you nudged him out on a couple points there, just knowing kind of what to what to focus on in the pitch and what to focus on in the fighting. I think that that is uh, really what what uh, helped uh, you get that first win. Yeah, Zach put up a great fight for only a second and, and like twice in a row too. So I'm really excited to see what Zach will do in future games. I feel like he's going to be a great competitor. You know, it, all, it did come down to experience and what to, what to defend. And I think that was where I grew the most in terms of these last few games was just learning how to, to narrow down my pitch to what's important and to yeah. learn how to defend that as well and learn how to attack. Like Experience is, is definitely helpful, so I can't wait to see what Zach does next. Yeah, I think that was your most like to-the-point pitching that you've done to this point, and I, and I think that uh, really helped you today because sometimes it's kind of dancing around like going into things that aren't as important. Today you kept it. These are the strong points of my plot. This is what I want to focus on. And this is why my cast fits in. And this is why my director works. I, I uh, It was tough. Zach puts up a good fight, though. So that was a great match. All right, I'm going to unmute Zach, see if he's 
Oh yeah, my main thing I'm going to point out is we saw today why Johnny is five and one when he dropped his A team casting. Where everyone you listed, I'm like, yep, that's the best choice. Well, <laughs> that's the best choice. That's the best choice. That's the best choice. So as you were like listing them off, I'm like, yep, that's why he's five and one. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm going to say my two favorite pitch, like my favorite pitch of each. Uh, my favorite pitch of Zach's was definitely his uh, Inspector Gadget horror movie with uh, Bill Hader. Uh, I really enjoyed that one. And then my favorite pitch of Tristan's was his David Lynch Lost in Space. Oh, really yeah. Like the, the David Lynch Lost in Space. <laughs> we're we're going to do it sometime in December after the holidays. We're going to do an award show. And I think Tristan might have just got uh, put up his nomination for best pitch of the year with that David Lynch one. So I think he'll maybe one of the, one of the candidates for that. I really like that pitch for sure. Yeah. All right. I'm going to unmute Zach and see if he has anything he wants to say. So All right. Zach, what was your favorite? Any, any thoughts? Uh, can you guys hear me? Cause I did put something in the yeah. chat, but yeah, we can hear yeah, you. Yeah. I muted you okay. cause it was like a weird thing. Yeah. No, you're it's quieter on my phone right now. I don't know what's going on, but uh, what was the question? Sorry. Just any, just you any, anything. Basically, just say what you said in the private chat. You're, if you want. <laughs> any, anything any plugs? Like anything? Yeah, do what you got to do. I mean, yeah, it's been a wild week for me. I'm glad it's all over. Covering NHL free agency, college football, and I'm glad this one's over. I, I'm, I'm not happy I took an L, but I just got to get better. And hopefully, you know, I top. Yeah, that David Lynch lost in space thing. Once he once he dropped that, I'm like, I'm fucked here. Like, I, you know, I got I got nothing. I have a good cast, but I got I got nothing. That was that was pretty good. Yeah, that was uh, it was it was good having you on. Um, this was a great fight, uh, Zach. You're a new a new competitor in the arena, and I'm excited to face you in the future and to see you face off against other people. Um, and Tristan, congrats on the first win. You've really earned it because you've been a uh, you've been a mainstay on the on the show for a while now, and I've uh, I've been rooting for you, um, but but you still had to win me over on some things that. That eighteen one was was very close, so I I, uh, I just had to go with what I felt, you know, was the right cast and what movie I'd be. What had more cheer moments? And I'd cheer as soon as Mark Hamill and uh, oh, I would too. I, I brought on, it up on the screen, right? Yeah, yeah. It's hard to separate that, you know. I I don't like when people cast that and then make it completely about Star Wars or something, but you have to at least address it a little bit. Of everyone is going to be thinking of these people in your movie. So you got to at least have some moment in there. So yeah. I think that, I think that would be a good, a good moment for it. So yeah. um, again, I'm Johnny dupe. I was your judge today. I'm your host. Please rate, uh, rate and review our podcast five stars on your podcast app. Give us uh, a subscription and a, and a like on YouTube. Um, and, uh, and then Joe, you got anything to say before you, uh, before we go? Yeah. One thing like what you guys were saying about having Mark Hamill and uh, Harrison Ford on the screen together, like, when Kurt Russell and Sylvester Stallone were both announced to be in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, people wanted a Tango and Cash reunion, and Star Wars is like way, like a billion times more popular than Tango and Cash. And so, yeah, if you're going to have Mark Hamill and Harrison Ford in your movie, I want to see them on screen together. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's all I got. It's the only thing going on in my life, so... Yeah. Also, we have like zero comments on any of our videos. So if you're watching after the live show, like comment, like what your rules and movie pairings would be, any rules you want to see us use, movies you want to see us do. Even just comment, hey, I'm here to comment because I was told to. Just 
Yeah, that'd be just great. Just let, us know, let us know that you're listening to us. That would be cool. Yeah. Night, y'all. That says Night. John Tricky. That's the best way to end it. That's our sign off. Night, y'all. Night, y'all. <laughs> All right. Night, y'all. Night, y'all.